Fire signs Israel and Hamas are finalizing a deal to free some of the 240 hostages Hamas took captive. The deal would release dozens of women and children and lead to a pause in fighting of four or five days. Coming up on WBUR, what's ahead for Gaza? This is November 21st. Also ahead, we'll remember the 36-year-old nephrologist who practiced at Gaza City's hospital. He was killed by an Israeli airstrike last week. As Thanksgiving Day approaches, we'll look at how much of a table full of holiday tradition is going to cost you. And pie is a nice tradition, especially at a West Roxbury bakery. Whether it's our bourbon pecan or our apple caramel pie or even our blueberry pie, it's a different flavor than what you typically would get out of the grocery store. These stories and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News, I'm Lakshmi Singh. The Biden administration says it's hopeful some hostages held by Hamas could soon be freed. The Israelis are considering a pause in fighting for several days to facilitate the release of some hostages. This time period could also smooth the way for more aid getting into Gaza. Here's NPR's Michelle Kellerman. State Department spokesman Matthew Miller says the U.S. never thought that aid should be contingent on a hostage deal, but says the release of hostages will unlock more humanitarian assistance flowing into Gaza. The U.S. has been working on that for weeks now, encouraging Israel to allow fuel into Gaza and speed up the inspections of other aid. Miller says the U.S. is also encouraging Israel not to ramp up its offensive in the south until they have taken steps to account for the humanitarian needs there. Israeli authorities had encouraged Palestinians to move south to areas they said would be safer. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. NPR's Daniel Estrin has been tracking developments from the West Bank. As part of that deal, uh, both sides have agreed to approximately four days in pause in fighting. That will allow for Hamas to uh, actually go and search for all of the hostages. They, uh, Hamas has some of the hostages, but other uh, militant factions and even some private Palestinian citizens are believed to be holding some, some of the hostages. And so those four, approximately four days in, in pause in fighting will allow them to, to try to get a hold of uh, where are the rest of the hostages. NPR's Daniel Estrin. Travel's picking up ahead of Thanksgiving at airports. The TSA is expecting to screen a record 30 million people in the 12-day period that started last Friday and culminates Sunday. NPR's Joel Rose reports higher travels amplifying concerns about air safety. The Federal Aviation Administration commissioned a safety review by outside experts after a series of close calls on runways across the country this year. That group issued a 52-page report last week and, and the group had major concerns about the shortage of air traffic controllers that has left many key air traffic facilities short-staffed. That's forcing controllers to work overtime and grueling schedules. The group also raised concerns about outdated equipment and facilities. The report says, quote, urgent action is needed to maintain safety. There's been a major plea deal between the world's largest cryptocurrency exchange and the U.S. government. NPR's David Gura reports. After a years-long investigation, the U.S. government charged Binance with violating sanctions laws and running an unlicensed money transmitting business. Attorney General Merrick Garland says the company will pay one of the largest corporate penalties in U.S. history. The Treasury Department and the Commodity Futures Trading Commission are also parties to the deal. A separate suit from the SEC has not been resolved. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says Binance allowed terrorists and cyber criminals to use its site. Binance's founder and CEO Chengpeng Zhao, who's better known by his initials CZ, pleaded guilty to a separate charge. This is NPR.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts will invest more than $27 million to reduce fossil fuel reliance at 10 affordable housing developments across the state. It's part of an initiative to retrofit buildings with green energy infrastructure. Officials estimate that energy from buildings contributes to about one-third of the state's carbon emissions. Governor Maura Healy says the program will also help reduce energy costs for those in affordable housing. This program is what our approach is all about, our approach to climate change. It's an opportunity as well for the people who've borne the brunt of extreme weather and high energy costs to be the first in line to benefit from a clean energy revolution. The state is set to fund another round of similar projects next year. If you're hitting the road for Thanksgiving travel today, you likely have some company on the highways around the, around town. State transportation officials say today and tomorrow are the busiest days for drivers ahead of the holiday. The state is putting on hold scheduled construction work on major roads today through Monday morning to help alleviate congestion. That includes the Sumner Tunnel, which will remain open for the holiday weekend. The HOV lane from Boston to Quincy also has extended hours today from 2 to 7 p.m. If you are doing your traveling later this evening or tomorrow morning, could be some tough going in the weather department. WBOR's meteorologist Danielle Noyce tells us what's in store. Some slippery travel tonight well inland as snow develops west to east, 7 to 10 p.m. through western and central Massachusetts. One to three inches of snow accumulation in northern Worcester County, though some higher totals are likely with elevation. Otherwise, it's rain starting in the city around 10 p.m. or so and continuing through tomorrow morning. Heavy at times, there'll be reduced visibility, puddles, wipers on full blast to leave plenty of extra time to get where you need to be if you need to hit the road in the morning. Steady rain is done around noon, though, with just some leftover afternoon showers, about a half an inch to an inch of rain for most. The wind an issue on Cape Cod with gusts 40 to 50 miles per hour. And Daniel Noy says those winds could lead to some damage and power outages on Cape Cod. 40 degrees now in Boston. The time is 4.06. WBUR supporters include the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Its Secure Our World program is aimed at encouraging people to recognize and report phishing. More at cisa.gov slash secureourworld. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. If you ask Israel's leaders, they'll tell you the country has two goals in its war with Hamas in Gaza. Here's how Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu put it in a recent interview on NPR's Morning Edition. We need to demilitarize Gaza, and the second thing we have to do is de-radicalize Gaza. Let's zero in on that second objective. Is it possible to de-radicalize Gaza or any place through war? Natan Sachs directs the Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution. Thanks for talking this through with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, in that interview, Netanyahu compared Israel's bombing of Gaza to the Allies' conduct in World War II. Here's more of what he said. It's like, what do you do when you you beat the Nazi regime? Uh, Well, you... uh, Make sure that uh, Germany is not, doesn't arm itself again. And you also make sure that Nazism is uh, removed. So when we look at this central question of whether war can be a tool of de-radicalization, do you think World War II proves that de-radicalization through war is in fact possible? Well, it doesn't prove it one way or the other, but it does show that as part of a decisive victory, one might also achieve de-radicalization, but war is certainly not enough. And there are many differences between the two cases. What else is required? Well, first, you would think, if you think of that example or the example of Japan, then you would 
take a decisive victory, one that disproves the whole premise of the ideology behind that regime in the eyes of, the, of its own population, partly through the destruction of war, but partly through the decisive victory over that regime. And the second is an obvious promise of peace, of something that actually could emerge if de-radicalization happens. So what the Allies, and particularly the United States, offered Japan and the Allies offer in Germany, both West and East Germany, is a path forward, something, a choice that they can make. So the question when you turn to Gaza is first, will this victory truly be decisive, not only in Gaza, but overall over Hamas and over the ideology for which it stands? And second, is another avenue clearly open to Palestinians? Mm. Is there something that they can choose that is not this? And is there a risk that a high civilian death toll will actually make people more radicalized? I mean, the Palestinian health ministry says more than 12,000 people have been killed in Gaza, nearly 5,000 of them children. Could that work against Israel's stated goal? The death toll and the destruction in Gaza is enormous. And without a question, it will also lead to radicalization. So the question is, what kind of mixed bag will there be? There will be now probably generations of Palestinians growing up with this as a defining memory, perhaps, of their life. Some of them, many of them, wanting revenge and therefore a fertile ground for radicalization in the future. But there will also be, perhaps, if Israel is successful, and we don't know that yet, if Israel is successful, there will also be the lack of the physical and organizational infrastructure in the Gaza Strip that would offer radicals the opportunity. So the radicalization that will surely follow from this massive destruction in the Gaza Strip and the staggering death toll will also be coupled, perhaps, by a lack of opportunity given the degradation of Hamas itself, of course, depending on what emerges in its wake. There could be other organizations, more radical organizations, different ones, or Hamas itself in a more underground form. How does one even measure if an effort at de-radicalization is successful? It seems like you would be trying to measure people's opinions, people's points of view, people's beliefs. How can you tell whether a population has been, quote-unquote, de-radicalized? Well, in part, it's just that. In part, it is people's opinions. But it's not so much just polling. It is more also their willingness to support uh, radical organizations. Radical organizations need the support of the population. It's not just the operatives themselves. It's their ability to operate within a population, to find refuge and hideout, but also to recruit future uh, activists. All this depends on the societal attitudes. And yes, that is partly a matter of opinion. When we think about de-radicalization through these means, of course, it's very easy to see all the pitfalls. And this Israeli operation, especially given the staggering death toll in the Gaza Strip, is bound to also radicalize the population and make it hard. But when we're thinking of policy, we also have to think of the alternative. If Hamas stays in power, the prospect of de-radicalization or of a better future for Gazans and for Israelis is minimal. We could expect almost guaranteed another round of violence, another war in the near future. So while a lot of criticism is due, certainly for the way Israel's conducting this war, there's a very important policy question, which is what precisely is the alternative? And if the alternative includes Hamas staying in power in the Gaza Strip, that's not much of an alternative at all. Natan Sachs is the director of the Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. Thank you very much.
The Department of Veterans Affairs has announced that it is halting foreclosures for six months for thousands of veterans. Many were on the verge of needlessly losing their homes. The move follows an investigation by NPR that first reported the problem a week ago. NPR's Chris Arnold reports. A lot of veterans and service members will be breathing easier this Thanksgiving. That's because many were about to lose their homes through no fault of their own. We first reported on one of those families last week. Ray and Becky Queen were showing us around their farm in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. This is Cagney and Lacey, our, um, our ducks. The couple lives here with their two young kids. Ray served in Iraq in the Army. Inside their house, he says he was wounded by an improvised explosive device, or IED. And just so you're aware, um, I, I, I have brain damage from my time in Iraq, so there's a lot of different things that don't work the way they're supposed to anymore. Um, and my memory is not great. For decades, the federal government has helped veterans like Queen to buy homes through its VA loan program. And during the pandemic, tens of thousands of people with VA loans took what's called a COVID forbearance that allowed them to skip six or 12 mortgage payments if they had a hardship. When Becky's mom died of COVID, she had to take an extended leave from work and lost her job. Last year, the couple says their mortgage company told them they could stop paying their mortgage while they got back on their feet financially. I very specifically asked, how does this work? And they said, we're taking all of your payments, we're bundling them and we're putting them at the end. That is, the missed payments would move to the back end of their loan term so they could just resume their regular mortgage payments. But that is not how it worked out because a year ago, the VA ended the program that let people actually do that, stranding families like the Queens with bad options that many couldn't afford. Either pay a big lump sum to catch up or refinance at today's high rates. We spoke to the Queens right after they'd received a foreclosure notice. My heart dropped and like my hands were shaking. It was scary. How does that happen? This is supposed to be a program that y'all have to help people in times of crisis so you don't take their house from them. NPR spoke with other veterans around the country who were in the same boat. Karen Whitley's a former Navy aviation electrician who lives in Lakeland, Florida. I feel like I've been hoodwinked. I feel like I've been scammed almost. You know, the next thing we know, the sheriff's gonna be at the door. I mean, we live here. We have nowhere else to go. <laughs> Jeanelle Rainier-Briggs lives in Lacey, Washington. They put the house into foreclosure. My kids came home from school and they were taping stuff onto our door. They're like, here's this. And I opened it. And I mean, I literally almost threw up. Mortgage industry data shows there are 6,000 people with VA loans who took forbearances who are currently in the foreclosure process and 34,000 more who were delinquent. Meanwhile, the VA has been working on a new program to help, but it won't be up and running for four or five months. So it was going to be too late to save many of those families from losing their homes. Ray Queen wanted to know why the VA couldn't just stop foreclosing on people until the new program was available. Let us keep paying towards our regular mortgage between now and then. And then once the VA has that fixed, then we come back and we address the situation. That seems like the adult mature thing to do, not put a family through hell. We interviewed the top official in the VA loan program. His name is John Bell. And this is me asking him directly about what Ray Queen said. Why not just stop foreclosing on people? Why put families through hell, he said. 
if we don't have to, if, you know, if there's going to be help in a few months. I, I have never I haven't said through this interview that that, you know, that we aren't exploring all options at this at this point in time, because we certainly are. We owe it to our veterans to make sure that we're giving them every opportunity to be able to stay in the home. After our first story aired, a group of four U.S. senators fired off a letter to the VA, including Senator John Tester of Montana. He's chair of the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee. He posted a video, too. The Biden administration needs to act now to address this crisis. Our veterans risk their lives serving our country, and they earn the home loan guaranteed benefit. They're having to rug pulled out from underneath them, and that is totally unacceptable. The senators asked the VA to halt the foreclosures. And on Friday evening, the VA said it's now doing just that. Steve Sharp is a senior attorney with the National Consumer Law Center. Very relieved. The VA's decision to put that pause in place, give folks six months, let their program come out, it will help thousands of people. That includes Ray and Becky Queen. This is me telling them about it the night the VA made the announcement. The VA is now going to stop foreclosing while they figure out this new program and get it up and running so people in your guys' situation can take advantage of it and not lose your house for no reason. That's awesome. (laughs) The couple says they're still upset they had to go through months of stress and worry and almost declared bankruptcy when they didn't do anything wrong, but... The fact that telling our story and getting some sort of justice for what's going on with our problems and everything else also helps 40,000 other veterans, that's absolutely amazing to me. The VA says any homeowner who's behind on their payments can get in touch by calling or visiting va.gov. Chris Arnold, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thanks for being with us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we'll remember the doctor who practiced at Gaza City's Al-Shifra Hospital. He was killed by an Israeli airstrike last week. Israel had ordered an evacuation, but he refused so he could continue to care for his patients. Funding for WBUR's business report comes from Vertex, where cell and genetic therapies teams are using innovation to create and deliver transformative therapies for people living with serious diseases. Learn more about how you can make your mark and shape the future at Vertex. Career opportunities at vrtx.com. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at wbur.org cars. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by BU's Metropolitan College offering graduate degrees, providing competitive skills in the field of marketing. Find on-campus master's programs in areas such as advertising. And on Wall Street today, the street gave up some ground. The Dow lost two-tenths of a percent. S&P and NASDAQ both snapped a five-day winning streak. S&P gave up two-tenths of a percent. NASDAQ fell six-tenths of a percent. A Cambridge biotech company is being acquired by pharmaceutical giant Merck in a $610 million deal. Caraway Therapeutics focuses on experimental drugs for rare and neurodegenerative diseases such as Parkinson's. Merck says it plans to continue Caraway's work by testing the drug's 
in humans. This is WBUR. It's the time of year when Christians begin their preparations for Christmas. Now some church leaders are asking their congregations to think more deeply about what that means. The real emphasis of this season is on the pursuit of justice and peace. In the world we live in right now, you can't get more relevant than that. Reclaiming Advent on the next morning edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Columbia Pictures and Apple Original Films presenting Napoleon. Directed by Ridley Scott and starring Joaquin Phoenix, Napoleon tells the story of Napoleon Bonaparte's rise to power, exclusively in theaters Thanksgiving. And from the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world, and every purchase supports NPR's high-quality journalism. Available to adults 21 or older, nprwineclub.org. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. As friends and families gather around the dinner table later this week, some will be giving thanks for lower inflation. Grocery prices are still high, but they're not climbing as fast as they had been. And for many people, the cost of cooking up a Thanksgiving feast is actually a little lower this year than it was last. NPR's Scott Horsley reports. Standing outside a supermarket a few days before the most food-centric holiday of the year, Angelina Murray has a familiar complaint about food prices. They are high. They are high, but that's the cost of living. That's what it is. There's nothing that we can do until prices come down. We're just going to have to deal. The American Farm Bureau Federation, which has been tracking Thanksgiving prices for almost four decades, agrees this year's bill is historically high, but not quite as high as last year's. That's welcome news for Bridget Kaiser, whose menu includes turkey, stuffing, mashed potatoes, and lots of pie. She and her husband are hosting nearly two dozen people this year. My mom, his mom, his brother, his brother's wife, friends of my kids from her school, from families that don't celebrate, and a family that lives in my mom's basement. The Farm Bureau says the overall cost of a traditional feast is down about 4.5% from a year ago, largely thanks to falling turkey prices. Food economist Michael Swanson of Wells Fargo says turkey farmers raised a lot more birds this summer in preparation for this week's meal. All of them put a lot more birds in the barn, and they're heavier birds. So there's a lot of turkey available right now, and they just have to price it down to move it. But some of the money shoppers save on turkey may get gobbled up elsewhere. Sweet potato prices are slightly higher than a year ago, and Swanson says russet potatoes are a lot more expensive. A year ago, the Pacific Northwest was in a terrible drought. And that really hurt the potato seed for this year. So they're still kind of doing it in the catch-up mode. They had a good year this year, but it takes a while to get that supply chain to unkink. And then there's the great cranberry conundrum. The price of fresh cranberries is way down this year, thanks to a bumper crop. But if your family likes the can variety, the kind where you can still see the ridges of the can, even when it's on the plate, expect to pay a lot more as a result of higher processing and packaging costs. The entire canned market is up. Whether you're talking about beans or cranberries or pumpkins, canned prices really shot up. 
David Chavern, who represents packaged food companies as head of the Consumer Brands Association, warns the price of canned goods could go even higher next year if the Biden administration slaps new tariffs on imported steel. We've been pleased that the Department of Commerce has held off on those tariffs for the most part, but there's going to be a final determination at the beginning of 2024 that we're watching very closely. In the meantime, Chavern's planning his own Thanksgiving feed with plenty of friends and family. We're expecting it to be pretty big ourselves. It is still some element of this pent-up post-COVID demand to, to connect with people. It's great from our perspective. We love having people around. Back at the supermarket, Colton Parker and Carrie Murray are loading groceries into the back of their car. By now, they've gotten a little numb to high prices at the supermarket, but they still did a double take at the long receipt. It was, we, we weren't looking at the prices until we stepped out, and then looking at the receipt, you say, oh, wow. Uh, yeah, I think I was surprised that a lot of the produce was on sale. Like, that was kind of a nice surprise. Yeah. Things that are expensive, it's the stuff that has been expensive for a while. But, you know, it's for family, it's for the holidays. Some shoppers say they are cutting corners here and there, switching to store brands, for example. But most say Thanksgiving is a time to count blessings, not hunt for bargains. Overall, grocery prices have risen just over 2% during the last 12 months, after a jump of more than 12% the previous year. If other food prices, like turkey, actually start to come down, that will be gravy. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Agriculture is responsible for about 10% of America's greenhouse gas emissions. The federal government is spending $3 billion to try to transform the industry from part of the climate problem to part of the solution. The so-called climate smart commodities money has been rolling out for a year now. Rachel Cohen from member station Boise State Public Radio visited one ranch in Idaho to see how it's being spent. Yeah, at the mark. Okay, so then let's look at... In a hilly sagebrush pasture in southeastern Idaho, cattle ranchers Wendy and Mark Pratt are navigating toward a GPS coordinate. So this is interesting. The pin they spot in the ground is the starting point for a research project. Mark unravels measuring tape. We're going to make a box monitoring box. A team of consultants from a project called Grazewell is here to help assess their ranching practices over five years. They chose this spot, which looks out to snowy peaks on the horizon because the soil is sandy, Wendy says. So this is the one that we can use to figure out the potential of the rest of the sand hills on the rest of the ranch. The Prats are regenerative ranchers. That generally means they move their cows around a lot to allow plants to replenish in between bites. They started ranching this way decades ago, in part because of pressure from environmentalists. They're interested in knowing more about where their food came from. And this is just one more step in that process. Not only where did it come from, but how did it get here? What what process got it to us? All 100 ranches in their beef co-op, Country Natural Beef, are part of Grazewell too. The idea is that healthy rangeland is not just a boon for business, but the climate too. On the pasture, they dig up soil samples to send to a lab. Healthy soil can soak up carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. 
The Grayswell team working here will travel to 120 ranches to conduct baseline assessments. It's part of the $3 billion the Department of Agriculture is spending on 141 projects, like planting cover crops on millions of acres, converting waste to biofuels, and restoring forests. The department thinks all this could capture more than 60 million metric tons of carbon dioxide. That would be like taking 12 million gas-powered cars off the road for a year. I think the right word to call this sort of set of money is historic. Omantana Goswami is a food researcher at the Union of Concerned Scientists. She says climate-smart commodities opens up climate action to way more farmers than ever before. But proving carbon reduction on farms and ranches is tough. In the first year, Goswami says, there's insufficient data for most projects. On what each project was setting out to do, who was doing them, and what was the role of each partner within it? And and a lot of those questions are unanswered even to this date. The USDA requires regular monitoring, but Goswami isn't sure what will be publicly available. So she says it may be tough to know if the projects are delivering results. But the Prats are hopeful that consumers understand the benefits of Grayswell. We hope that there's a message out there that cattle production can be a good thing. The Prats co-op is working on a label to tell supermarket shoppers that its beef is climate friendly. The plan is for the label to start appearing in stores next year. For NPR News, I'm Rachel Cohen. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. We catch up with a woman who was evicted from her apartment, struggling to find shelter and battling pancreatic cancer at the same time. That story is coming up at 4.50. Got lots of rain coming up tonight. Pushed around by a strong wind, temperatures in the mid-30s. Rain could last through the night and through tomorrow morning around the Boston area. Not a fun commute tomorrow. Should be pretty wet and windy and by the afternoon though we should just have some leftover showers 40 degrees now in boston the time is 4 30. we're funded by you our listeners and by mass general brigham health plan integrated with one of the world's leading healthcare systems and offering innovative plans a broad network of doctors and options for individuals families and retirees mass general brigham health plan is focused on you and those important to you every day MassGeneralBrighamHealthPlan.org and Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at FindMassMoney.gov. I'm Tiziana Deering. My colleagues and I at NPR and at WBUR are covering the Israel-Hamas war and the resulting humanitarian crisis. Whether we're reporting on the front lines or making sense of the crisis from thousands of miles away, our journalism requires editorial rigor, skill, and sensitivity. Support the journalism you trust. Make your end-of-year gift at WBUR.org. And thanks. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The Biden administration says Israel and Hamas are close to reaching a deal that could begin to secure the release of hostages in Gaza. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby would only comment that progress is being made. 
we are closer than we've been. Um, uh, we believe we're getting closer, but I will not have any updates for you. I'm not going to be able to confirm the details that have made it into the press reporting. Uh, I'm simply not going to negotiate in public. Uh, we're, we're obviously working on this very, very hard, uh, and we're all hopeful. An agreement would lead to the first major pause in fighting since Hamas attacked southern Israel on October 7th. The militant group kidnapped roughly 240 people that day. A federal judge has ruled that mail-in ballots in Pennsylvania that arrived on time without handwritten dates should be counted for next year's midterm elections. NPR's Hansi Lowong reports the ruling is expected to be appealed and ultimately end up before the U.S. Supreme Court. This is the latest twist in a long-running legal saga that may help determine who wins next year's elections in the swing state of Pennsylvania. State law requires mail-in ballots to be sent in envelopes that include a date handwritten by voters. But those dates are not used to verify whether a person is qualified to vote. The ruling by U.S. District Judge Susan Paradise Baxter agrees with the Pennsylvania State Conference of the NAACP and the Democratic Campaign Committees for Congress. The judge ruled not counting those kinds of ballots violates the Civil Rights Act, which says a person's right to vote cannot be denied for an error that is, quote, not material in determining if a person is eligible to vote. Anzi Wong, NPR News. This is NPR News in Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts lawmakers are considering restrictions on how police can use facial recognition technology. As WBUR's Walter Wuthman reports, activists say the technology disproportionately misidentifies people of color. The proposal would require police to obtain a warrant before using facial recognition technology on an unidentified suspect. It would also require police to inform criminal defendants they were identified through the software so they have the opportunity to challenge it. State Senator Cynthia Cream is one of the bill's sponsors. Facial recognition technology is dangerous, both in its ability to facilitate government surveillance and its track record of misidentifying people in criminal investigations. Two other states, Montana and Maine, have recently passed laws limiting law enforcement's use of facial recognition technology. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. The number of migrants coming to Massachusetts appears to be declining. Governor Maura Healy says state officials have seen a recent drop in the number of migrants looking for emergency shelter. Healy says the incoming colder weather is one possible reason for the decline. This month, the state reached its emergency shelter capacity. This week, a temporary shelter space opened at a state office in Boston. Massachusetts President of the Senate Karen Spilka is no longer on X, the social media site once known as Twitter, and she's encouraging others to follow suit. Spilka says the site enables and promotes hate speech under its current owner, Elon Musk. The lawmaker announced her departure in a statement issued by her office today. She says she will continue to use other social media platforms. We're in the midst of one of the busiest seasons for train travel in the U.S. Amtrak estimates more than 900,000 people will take trains during the 10-day period surrounding Thanksgiving. Here in the greater Boston area, Amtrak officials say nearly 80,000 travelers will take the train primarily to destinations along the Northeast Corridor. Jen Flanagan is a spokesperson for Amtrak. She says the numbers represent a large increase over the past few years. We're certainly back to pre-pandemic ridership, if not exceeding pre-pandemic ridership. Things have kind of transitioned out of that pandemic window. I would say last year we were essentially at 80 to 85 percent of what we were pre-pandemic. 
Flanagan recommends travelers get to their destination a train station about an hour of ahead of schedule. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com and the Provider Group, an insurance brokerage and benefits firm serving high-net-worth individuals and businesses, working with carriers like Safety Insurance, ProviderIG.com. Rain lasting through the night tonight and into tomorrow morning. Overnight lows in the mid-30s. Then for tomorrow, the rain should dry itself out by the afternoon. Just a few leftover showers. Temperatures close to 50 degrees. 39 now in Boston at 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Israeli attacks have killed more than 200 healthcare workers in Gaza since the start of the war, according to Gaza's Ministry of Health. It says another 215 health workers have been wounded. And those left behind say there is little time to mourn the dead. In that spirit, one doctor shared memories about his slain colleague. The man who died was named Hamam Alo, and NPR's Vanessa Romo has this remembrance. Dr. Hamam Alo hadn't left Al-Shifa Hospital in Gaza City for days. Before it was entered by Israeli troops, fighting near the hospital made it incredibly dangerous to leave, and the deluge of wounded people kept doctors, nurses, and other medical personnel working around the clock, often for a week or more at a time. On November 11th, Allo left the hospital to see his family. By then, the 36-year-old kidney specialist had seen myriad horrors, trying to save the lives of others. But on that Saturday, he lost his own. Every one of these doctors who stayed behind, you know, these men and women should be recognized for their heroism. That's Tarek Lubani, a Canadian emergency room doctor. He's also of Palestinian origin and a longtime friend of Allo. The two met in 2012, when Allo was still in medical school, and Lubani traveled to Gaza on a training mission with a group of Canadian physicians. They stayed in touch and got closer over the last decade, meeting up whenever Lubani traveled back to Gaza. This is how he describes Allo back in the early days of their friendship. He was a young, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed medical student who just wanted more than anything to help the people around him. and such a dedicated human being. Before his death, Allo regularly updated the press about the ghastly conditions at Shifa. One of his last interviews was with the program Democracy Now! on October 31st, just 11 days before a missile struck his family home, killing Allo, his father, and several other relatives. When the host of the show asked Allo why he refused to heed Israel's demands to evacuate the hospital, here's what he said. You think I went to medical school and for my postgraduate degrees for a total of 14 years? So I think only about my life and not my patients. The last time Lubani and Allo spoke was on October 8th, the day after Hamas launched the attack that killed 1,200 people in Israel, igniting the latest war. Israel says its offensive is aimed at destroying Hamas and rescuing hostages, and that Hamas has been operating inside hospitals or in tunnels underneath them. During Lubani and Allo's brief exchange, 
Lubani told Allo to stay safe. And I promised him that if anything happened, that we would take care of his family. And you know, that's like, it's not just that I lost my friend. The Palestinians lost their future. Allo, Lubani explained, was spearheading a new kidney treatment facility in Gaza. Now that he's dead and much of the territory's infrastructure has been obliterated, those plans have turned to ash. These men and women, when they get killed, it's also the death of all the patients they would have helped. Also the death of a sister. That's, that's what it means when Hamam got killed. Allo himself was anguished over the future of medical care in Gaza. Toward the end of his interview with Democracy Now!, he was asked if he had a message for the world. Allo urged America not to look away. We are being exterminated. We are being massively eradicated. And you pretend to, to care for humanitarian and human rights, which is not what we are living now. To prove us wrong, please do something. Palestinian health officials now say more than 12,000 people have been killed in the enclave since the war began. And the head of the World Health Organization says nowhere and no one is safe in Gaza. Vanessa Romo, NPR News. There's a little novella by Helen DeWitt. It's called The English Understand Wool. It's a psychological thriller that also works as a satirical critique of the publishing industry. The book came out in 2022, but it recently got so popular, you pretty much can't find a copy anywhere. NPR's Andrew Limbong has more on this tiny book that's now a big hit. Three Lives and Company is a bookstore in the West Village in New York where Miriam Chotner Gardner is a bookseller and buyer and importantly a booster for Helen DeWitt's The English Understand Wool. I think this book is pretty wholly original. The voice is singular. In 70 pages, 70 pages, Helen DeWitt I think accomplishes something that many writers don't accomplish at two or three times that length. It's such a cohesive voice. It's cutting, it's snobbish, it's clever, it's witty. It's also sold out. Are you guys tapped out? Oh, we're tapped out. We're waiting for the next printing. We've got all these orders lined up. The book is published by New Directions, and their head, Barbara Epler, says the book has sold nearly 10,000 copies, which is huge for a small publisher like them. And she says there may be a couple reasons why this book is popping off right now. One is a scarcity of any new Helen DeWitt work. You know, relative to her talent, she just doesn't publish enough. DeWitt's first novel, The Last Samurai, unrelated to the Tom Cruise movie, is an epic story about a mother and her prodigy son, and it was published in 2000. Since then, DeWitt's published a couple short story collections here and there, but that's it. Everyone is hungry for more Helen. But what really drove interest was this TikTok. Hi, everybody. It's Ann Patchett at Parnassus Books, and it's Friday. Ann Patchett, the author, bookstore owner, and now book influencer, does a lot of work promoting lesser-known authors, and she posted this in October. I went to one of my favorite stores, Three Lives, in New York, in the West Village, and I said, what's selling? What are you guys loving these days? And they showed me a book I had never seen before. I, really I think you can guess which book. Here's Miriam Chotner Gardner from Three Lives Again. She was here visiting and signing stock of Tom Lake, and we recommended it to her. And she took it home, I think read it on the plane. I took a nap on the plane. I woke up. I started it over again. Oh, my God. This is the best thing ever. 
in the last month, dozens and dozens of people have come in asking for the book because of Anne's TikTok. Here's publisher Barbara Epler. That was a very big bump. That was, I think we were cruising along at like, I don't know, 6,000 copies. And so now we have back orders. So essentially it's doubled. Oh, it was lovely. It was so, it was so sweet of her. I mean, you know, she, she really did seem to like it. And, um, you know, it was just a lovely thing to do. That's author Helen DeWitt, who, by the way, when I reached her in Berlin, also didn't have a hard copy. But uh, I really did not know that it was um, so popular. I, I'm sort of out of the loop, I guess. DeWitt says her novella, which is about a rich young girl navigating her way through the publishing world, was inspired by Daenerys Targaryen from the Game of Thrones books. Once she started to realize the machinations of the people she was dealing with, you know, she would... She would start saying, I'm only a young girl, but, and then she would run rings around these cynical players who were trying to use her as a pawn. And I just, I loved that. The book is an interesting critique of the publishing industry with hard questions over what kind of story are you willing to sell? But that question only matters if there's a book available to buy. And Barbara Epler from New Directions tells me there are more copies of The English Understand Wool on the way. Andrew Limbaugh, NPR News. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Throughout the country, prison lockdowns have increased, often due to shortages of correctional guards. That has been an acute problem this year in Wisconsin. The state's governor recently announced prison reforms, but critics say it is not enough to remedy inhumane conditions. Chuck Kornbach of member station WUWM reports. There are 37 state correctional facilities in Wisconsin. For several months, a few thousand male inmates have rarely been able to leave their cell or have visitors. Stop the torture in the lockdown. Close Green Bay. Stop. Demonstrators rallied recently protesting one of Wisconsin's oldest prisons, the 125-year-old Green Bay Correctional Institution. The 1,000 men housed there are on lockdown. Two Feathers Sechrist spent four years inside the prison and was released last year. He says lockdowns are difficult. Showers once every week, if you were lucky, you know, but usually it was every every two to three weeks. Um, it was rough. Um, medication lines were pretty much non-existent. They wouldn't let you out of the cells for nothing. Cicely Atterbury's former partner is an inmate at Green Bay. She says phone calls are limited and visits banned, which means their daughter can't stay in touch with her father. It affects my daughter's behavior, the way that she looks at things, and with the conditions that her father is in, it's just hard, it's dim, it's gray, like it's sad. There are even worse problems at Wisconsin's Waupun prison, say advocates for inmates. There have been three inmate deaths, at least one ruled a suicide, all while the prison was locked down. Wisconsin Governor Tony Evers recently announced a plan to lift some of the restrictions and earlier told reporters he was fully aware of the controversy surrounding locking prisons down. It's a huge issue. We have to be thoughtful about people that die in our care 
But at, at the end of the day, we do need to make sure that we have enough staff, and that's what's making the lockdown. In recent weeks, the vacancy rate for correctional officers and sergeants at the two prisons ranged between 41 and 55 percent. Those types of vacancies and extended lockdowns have also played out in Mississippi, North Carolina, Texas, and Oklahoma prisons over the last two years, according to the ACLU. Wisconsin's governor hopes recent pay increases that bring the beginning salary for correctional officers to $33 an hour will help fill vacancies. He's also directing the state corrections department to allow prisoners more time out of their cell. But for now, visitation and recreation remain suspended. Jessica Sandoval, national director of the prisoner advocacy group, the Unlock the Box campaign, says the Wisconsin plan lacks specifics. She says instead of trying to hire more prison staff, states should be looking at feasible ways of reducing the inmate population. So whether that's through clemency or through certain uh, sentence reductions that could also be uh, people who have, you know, certain health conditions based on age. Those kinds of considerations would be certainly one way to reduce the numbers of people incarcerated. Sandoval and other advocates believe that could greatly reduce any need for prison lockdowns. For NPR News, I'm Chuck Kornbach in Milwaukee. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR, a life with no appetite, coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR. Some heavy showers ahead, most of them after 10 o'clock tonight. In central and western Mass, could have some snowfall in some high-altitude areas. Careful if you're traveling out that way. It could be messy and slick. Back in Boston, 37 overnight tonight. Then for tomorrow, a rainy start. Windy as well. Rain should make for a dicey morning commute tomorrow. Temperatures about 50 degrees. 39 degrees now in Boston. WBUR supporters include Science Club for Girls, growing the 4% of black and Latina female scientists and engineers and transforming the face of STEM. Donate at scienceclubforgirls.org. Boston has received its annual gift of a Christmas tree from the people of Nova Scotia. It's a 40-year-old, 45-foot-tall white spruce. It arrived on the Boston Common this morning. This year marks the 52nd annual tradition to thank people of Boston for sending help after a deadly explosion in Halifax Harbor in 1917. The official tree lighting on the Common is set for next Thursday night. This is 90.9 WBUR. Again, it is 39 degrees now in Boston. The time is 4.49. WBUR supporters include Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages. Starts Friday. Tickets at bostonballet.org. And Comcast Business, providing gig speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. I'm Scott Tong. It all started a hundred years ago with a mouse. Mickey first graced the silver screen in the Disney animated short Steamboat Willie, the first cartoon with moving pictures and sound to go with them. It was jaw-dropping. It was, dare I say it when I talk about Disney, it was magic. 
This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Housing advocates have complained for years that there is not enough affordable housing in Massachusetts. So WBUR and ProPublica were surprised to discover earlier this year that more than 2,000 state public housing units were sitting empty. Some had been vacant for years. We asked WBUR investigative reporter Todd Wallach to give us an update on this story. And Todd, your report got a lot of traction this fall. The state executive office of housing promised a 90-day push to fill the vacant units. We are now at the halfway mark in that push. So how much headway has the state made in moving people into the apartments? So far, they've only filled a small fraction of the number of vacancies. But they're expecting to make a significant dent in empty units by early next year. And they're making a number of changes to try to accomplish that goal. For instance, they're giving local housing agencies extra money to prepare apartments and help find new tenants. They've hired an outside contractor to help screen applications. And they're examining units that need repairs. But some need major renovations, and it's going to take a lot of time to fix those up and make them ready. And while they're doing that, there are thousands of people who are still waiting for public housing. One woman you profiled is Deb Libby, who was, as of two months ago anyway, facing eviction. How's she doing now? That's right. Libby is one of many people who are desperately seeking housing. Unfortunately, a new landlord bought her building and ordered her out. So she was evicted. Yes, she was evicted, and it couldn't have come at a worse time for her. She's battling cancer and needs surgery. She had to leave her last job at a hardware store because of her health problems. You're going to hear from her now. A colleague and I went to visit her at a motel in Sturbridge where she was staying. Come on in. Libby has been living in this cheap motel room near Old Sturbridge Village in Central Mass. The room has blood-orange walls and thick gold drapes over the window facing the parking lot. She's running out of money, so she's desperate to find a new place to sleep. I'm very concerned that I will be sleeping in my truck, which is not comfortable, and is full. Libby was evicted from her Worcester apartment last month. She piled clothes in the back of her pickup truck, put other belongings in storage, and threw the rest away. But the 57-year-old shows off a piece of jewelry she couldn't let go. Uh, My kids got this for me when they were little. It's just a a gold necklace with a light blue sapphire, and I wear it all the time. Libby has needed memories like that to get through the past few months. Her pancreatic cancer came back. She had to give up her job at a hardware store because of health problems. And she had to borrow money just to pay for this room. I'm so stressed out. I I can't even cry. I can't sleep. I get sick to my stomach. I can't eat. Libby is one of more than 180,000 people on the state wait list for public housing. A WBUR and ProPublica investigation found more than 2,000 units were empty, sometimes for years. State housing officials vowed to fill as many as possible by the end of the year. So far, they've only filled 143 apartments, or about 6%. The state's plan hasn't helped Libby yet. She's turned her motel bed into a mini office with a laptop and piles of paper as she calls one shelter after another. She waits, trying to reach anyone who can help. Please hold while I try to connect you. This is all day. Most of the time, no one answers and she leaves a message. Yeah, hi, my name is Deborah Libby. I'm calling from the Worcester area and I'm looking for um, immediate emergency shelter. (sighs) <sighs> the place in Ashland, um, 
there was a nice person that I talked to there, but you know, they didn't have anything for at least eight weeks. Libby's attorney, Matt Wishnoff, says many of his clients can't find housing. He works for Community Legal Aid in Worcester, which helps people facing eviction. Rents across the board are being raised precipitously, and it leaves our clients in really vulnerable positions. Wishnoff says some clients stay with friends and family while they look for permanent housing. Not everyone has that option. Quite frankly, they sometimes have to stay in their cars. Worse comes to worse, they can live rough on the streets. That is a situation that I don't even like to think about. It often takes years for people to find public housing. And Wishnoff says Libby needs a place now. Her cancer has spread to the liver. She says she needs surgery, but can't schedule it until she has a long-term place to stay. Yeah, I definitely need housing to get the surgery. I, and it needs to happen. I, I can't keep putting this off. She wishes the state would find her an apartment. She says she has no choice. What am I going to do, give up and live under a bridge? <laughs> you don't really have an option of giving up. It's not an option. Libby recently moved into a Worcester shelter, but she is still waiting for a permanent home. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Todd Wallach. Thanksgiving is less than 48 hours away, which is especially essential information for local bakers who are hard at work crafting desserts for hundreds of customers and their own families. WBR's Lainey Ruck still checked in with one baker in West Roxbury and got a look behind the scenes. Carlino Garrow owns Delectable Desires Pastries. The shop serves breakfast pastries and makes cakes for just about any occasion. But this is pie season, and today she's walking me through making one of her most popular. So right now I am going to make pecan mix for our pecan pies, our famous bourbon pecan pies. So already in the bowl, I have the syrup, the eggs, um, vanilla, and right now I'm going to scoop in the sugar. The filling then goes into a 30-pound mixer, where she adds even more ingredients. It's a pound of butter. Then she adds six pounds of pecans. So now we're just gonna pour our mixture into the shells and bake them all. Ogero says her specialty pies are what draw shoppers away from the grocery store bakery counters. Most people, when they order from like a small shop, they usually try to get the most unique. So whether it's our bourbon pecan or our apple caramel pie or even our blueberry pie, it's a different flavor than what, you know, you typically would get out of the grocery store. They come for that. And she's not just baking for customers. She's baking for family. My mother and father, they normally host. So my cousins, my husband, my brother and his wife, we all go to my parents. My mom makes a big feast. And I bring the pies, of course. Two apple, one pumpkin, because my mom just feels like that's traditional. And two bourbon pecan pies. I usually do vanilla ice cream, whipped cream, caramel drizzle. Like, I hook ours up. After Thanksgiving, Ogaro will start getting ready for another onslaught of holiday orders, and she won't take an extended break until the new year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Lainey Ruxtel. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks. 
creators of MATLAB and Simulink, sponsoring Discovery Museum's more than 2,500 traveling science workshops for Massachusetts schools. This is 90.9 WBUR. Some nasty weather tonight. Lots of rain pushed around by a strong wind. Temperatures in the mid-30s. Rain could last through the night into tomorrow morning. Look for a messy commute tomorrow. The rain should make its way out by tomorrow afternoon. Highs close to 50. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Israeli leaders are meeting to consider a deal that would mean the release of dozens of hostages in exchange for the release of Palestinian prisoners held by Israel. The hostages to be sent back to Israel could include 50 women and children. Our story is coming up on this Tuesday, November 21st. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also, for some Boston doctors, the deepening humanitarian crisis in Gaza feels personal. None of us ever anticipated that we would be witnessing anything on this kind of scale. And obesity medications that tamp down hunger mean some people are navigating life in the holidays without an appetite, and that is a big adjustment. Israel is not going to uh, occupy Gaza. This is totally inconceivable. This is not an option. These stories and Wall Street numbers are coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. With reports of a possible imminent deal to free some hostages being held by Hamas, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says even if a temporary ceasefire deal is reached between the two sides, the war will continue. In comments ahead of an expected vote by Israel's cabinet on a temporary ceasefire proposal, Netanyahu vowed to press forward with Israel's goal of eliminating Hamas's military capabilities in Gaza. Meantime, State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller, speaking for the Biden administration, said officials remain hopeful. We are very close to an agreement, uh, but we are not there yet. As you have heard us say a number of times over the course of the past few weeks, nothing is final until everything is final. Israel is expected to approve a temporary ceasefire in Gaza in exchange for the release of about 50 hostages. Meanwhile, fighting continues on the ground in Gaza. NPR's Lauren Freyer has more from Tel Aviv. Doctors Without Borders says three doctors have been killed in an airstrike on El Auda Hospital in northern Gaza. The group says it, quote, yet again calls for the respect and protection of medical facilities, staff and patients.
Indonesia's foreign minister has condemned an Israeli attack that killed civilians at an Indonesian hospital in the same northern zone, urging Israel to, quote, stop its atrocities. Israel accuses Hamas of using doctors and patients as human shields. Israeli forces are widening attacks on Gaza's north, including in the already devastated Jabalia refugee camp, the Strip's largest. An Israeli army spokesperson says its forces are preparing the battlefield in Jabalia and that they've killed dozens of militants in recent days. Lauren Freyer, NPR News, Tel Aviv. The founder of giant cryptocurrency exchange Binance is stepping down. Founder and CEO Changpeng Zhao also agreeing to plead guilty to money laundering charges to pay a fine of more than $4 billion. It's part of the deal with the U.S. government. Announcement on the terms of the agreement was made by the Justice Department and the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. The pace of home sales fell again last month, down 4.1%. But as NPR's Chris Arnold reports, a shortage of homes for sale is pushing prices up. Americans haven't been buying this few homes since way back in 2010. The culprits are still high interest rates and the worst housing shortage since records began 30 years ago. And the economics 101 effect of lower supply is higher prices. Lawrence Yoon is the chief economist of the National Association of Realtors. It is a very interesting dynamic in the housing market. Home sales plunge to a 13-year low levels, yet we are setting a new high in home prices, record high home prices. The median sales price for an existing home was nearly $392,000. That's the highest ever for October. Chris Arnold, NPR News. On Wall Street, the Dow was down 62 points today. You're listening to NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. If you're headed to Logan Airport to travel for the holiday, know that the MBTA is increasing free Silver Line service to and from the airport through Sunday. T General Manager Phil Eng is encouraging travelers to avoid driving to Logan. Mass transportation, um, knowing how busy travel is, is a, is a great way to go. And I hope everyone takes our, our system and has a great Thanksgiving and, and a safe holiday. Massport officials expect more than one million people to travel through Logan in the period around Thanksgiving. The forecast is showing some potentially difficult conditions for travel tonight and tomorrow for the holiday. Here's WBR's meteorologist Danielle Noyce. So we've got some sloppy weather on the way. A quick burst of snow well inland will arrive 7 to 10 p.m., resulting in 1 to 3 inches in the central and western part of the state. Some higher totals with elevation and slippery travel tonight. Uh, Otherwise, it's rain arriving in the city around or just after 10 p.m., continues through the morning tomorrow, tapering in intensity and coverage from midday onward. There'll probably just be a few leftover showers after that. So the worst driving conditions will certainly be in the morning. Rain totals half an inch to an inch for most. The wind, strongest on Cape Cod, where gusts to 50 miles per hour tomorrow will result in isolated pockets of damage and outages. President Biden and First Lady Jill Biden are set to arrive on Nantucket just before 7 o'clock tonight to celebrate Thanksgiving. The Bidens first began to celebrate the holiday on the island in 1975. The president and first lady are expected to attend Nantucket's annual tree lighting ceremony on Main Street tomorrow. And an 82-year-old man who lived in a mobile home left his hometown of Hinsdale, New Hampshire, a small fortune when he died. Jeffrey Holt died in June. Edwin Smokey Smith was his friend and employer. He says Jeffrey kept to himself and read newspapers and invested his money. He would be mortified if he knew what was going on now as far as all the stories about his gift and so forth. I'm sure that's one of the reasons why it's done this way and he doesn't have to participate in it. But he was kind and generous and 
always was that way, but he didn't like notoriety. He didn't like to be in the limelight. He says Jeffrey left $3.8 million to the New Hampshire Charitable Foundation for the benefit of Hinsdale, a town of about 4,200 people. 39 degrees now in the Boston area. Briefly in the forecast, look for some rain overnight tonight. Gusty winds as well. Temperatures just about 37 overnight. And for tomorrow, rain through the morning, tapering off in the afternoon. High temperatures about 50. Should see some sunshine on Thanksgiving day. It's 5.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by FX, presenting Fargo from creator Noah Hawley and starring Juno Temple, John Hamm, and Jennifer Jason Lee. The series returns with a new chapter tonight at 10 on FX, streaming on Hulu. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. After more than six weeks of war, Israel and Hamas appear to be on the verge of a deal that would swap some hostages held in Gaza for some prisoners jailed by Israel. The deal is to be accompanied by a temporary ceasefire that would last for a few days as the releases take place. But only a few dozen hostages of the 240 total appear to be included. For the latest, we are joined by NPR's Greg Myrie. He's in Tel Aviv. And Greg, what can you tell us about the details of the deal that is on the table right now? So, one, it's important to stress we still don't have a formal announcement. Uh, the Israeli government has been meeting all evening. Uh, the war cabinet, the security cabinet, the entire cabinet uh, in, in succession here. Now, the Hamas leaders in Gaza and abroad appear to have signed off on this, but they haven't said so formally. The proposal that's being discussed would involve about 50 Israeli women and children held by Hamas in Gaza since the Hamas attack on October 7th. They would be freed. In turn, the Israelis would be expected to release about 150 Palestinian women and teenagers held in Israeli prisons. And we should stress, even if there's an agreement, it could still be a day or so before the fighting stops and these exchanges begin. So a lot of things could happen in that time. And even if these exchanges begin, they won't happen all at once. They would play out over four days or so. Okay, walk us through us a bit here, underscoring the fact that there's not been this formal announcement yet. Would the fighting in Gaza stop while these exchanges are happening? Yes, that is absolutely the intent, and and this would be the first pause in the fighting after more than six weeks of daily bloodshed. Now, in addition, it seems Israel would be allowing more trucks into Gaza, perhaps up to 300 daily with food and fuel and medicine. So this would be a significant increase. It could ease the humanitarian crisis we are seeing in Gaza, and this would also mark the first significant diplomatic breakthrough uh, since the fighting began. Right. I mean, we're talking here about one exchange, but what about the remaining hostages and prisoners? Any sense of when they might be freed? No, that's really not clear. And we should again emphasize that this first phase took weeks of of difficult negotiations between Israel and Hamas, mediated by Qatar and the U.S. and others also uh, uh, putting, uh, having input in this. So nothing is is certain or guaranteed. Uh, There are media reports that the ceasefire could be extended. So if this first batch uh, goes smoothly, Uh, then Hamas could perhaps free another dozen or so hostages, and that would extend the ceasefire for another day or so. Now, the militants have about 240 hostages, so at that pace, this could take a very long time to play out. 
Most of the hostages in Gaza are Israelis, though there's a number of Americans. Uh, there are about 25 workers from Thailand and other foreign nationals as well. Um, also, the Israelis are holding more than 6,000 Palestinian prisoners. We don't know how many the Israelis might be willing to release in order to get all their hostages back. And the Israeli soldiers would probably be the last ones to be released. Right. And Greg, we have seen more than six weeks of heavy fighting. Do you think that this hostage deal could perhaps change the trajectory of the war and encourage more diplomatic efforts? Well, one, it's certainly a positive sign, but we certainly don't want to, to predict anything for certain here. Um, large numbers of Israeli ground troops are in northern Gaza. They control most of that part of the territory, and they would stay put during this temporary pause. The Israeli leader, Benjamin Netanyahu, said at a cabinet meeting tonight that after the pause, the fighting will resume. He said, quote, we are at war and we will continue the war. Mm. Uh, Hamas has suffered considerable setbacks, but it's still fighting with Israel. This, the group is by no means defeated. Yeah. This is particularly true in southern Gaza. So even if this exchange works, it doesn't guarantee another exchange, and it's still quite likely we'll see more fighting. NPR's Greg Myrie in Tel Aviv. Thank you, Greg. Sure thing, Juana. New obesity treatments tamp down hunger hormones, often to a dramatic degree. So some are navigating life and holidays like Thanksgiving without an appetite. NPR's Yuki Noguchi reports. Kim Tyler's kitchen is the family hub. It's where her mother, cousin, daughters, and four grandkids gather daily to feast on the things she makes. I'm the one that's trying new recipes and making everyone try something new. And I, if I'm traveling, I always want to try something I've never tried before. Her cabinet overflows with spices purchased during her travels. I've got every vinegar under the sun. <laughs> Halibut and salmon pulled from waters near her home in Soldatna, Alaska, fill her freezer. I made osabuka with moose. That was fun. I think it's a it's a mom thing. It's a family thing. You know, I'm really looking forward to Thanksgiving because I get to make dinner for everybody. But Tyler herself has no desire to eat since last summer when she went on Ozempic, a diabetes drug that also helps people lose weight. It switched off decades of what she calls emotional binge eating. It's almost an apathy. I still love to cook for people. I still love to watch my family eat. I still like to make things for people. I just don't care for it for myself. I'm completely apathetic. Most patients seeking to treat diabetes or obesity find this freedom from hunger liberating. But Christopher McGowan says there are some surprising effects that disturb some patients. McGowan is CEO of True You Weight Loss in Cary, North Carolina. Some patients will say they lost a friend. You know, food has been comfort for them for years, as it is for most of us. And suddenly they're robbed of that. And, and they're learning and relearning how to cope with stressors when they can't turn to food. The holiday fixation on food and family can compound that stress because of comments about weight loss or how little you're eating. McGowan advises patients to come prepared with responses, and he tells them to try to savor the social benefits of eating together. Take small amounts of each thing, you know, really enjoy it and, and express your enjoyment and satisfaction and tell the chef, whoever that is, how much you're enjoying it. But Tyler, the grandmother in Alaska, says the drug changed what she enjoys. Food is now a numbers game. She tracks her consumption of everything from grams of protein to glasses of water, not to mention the 53 pounds she's shed to date. And I think I have to be careful that I haven't traded one obsession for another. The numbers I keep talking about, 
that's the obsession now. I've never weighed myself for years and years and years, and now I can get a little obsessed about it. That also worries Joanna Kendall, CEO of the National Alliance for Eating Disorders. She says the new drugs may potentially worsen an already grave prevalence of eating disorders. Specifically, she worries about a newly recognized condition called ARFID, short for Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. Kendall says ARFID is characterized by an extreme disinterest or even fear of food. And like other disordered eating, it can also affect how they relate to others. There's a lot of comments like, can you just eat? Or I know that when I was going through my eating disorder, it was like everyone held their breath as I was sitting there and, and eating. But Kim Tyler says her lack of appetite hasn't made her less social. If anything, the joy of food has been replaced by the joy of being able to exercise and play outside with her grandkids. So I have so much fun with them and I can do more with them. Occasionally, Tyler remembers sugary or salty things she loved and misses. Soy sauce. Oh, the loss of soy. The loss of my Hawaiian shoyu has been very difficult. <laughs> but for now, she's fine with the trade-offs of life without an appetite. Will she or many others using obesity drugs long-term eventually bore of that life? Maybe. I'm still only three months in. Ask me a year from now if it's a chore. Yuki Noguchi, NPR News. Utah, a landlocked desert state, is not known for its aquatic mammals. So when a whale popped up at an intersection in Salt Lake City, there was controversy. KUER's Tilda Wilson reports. Reed Goodfellow loves the whale. What are you doing right now? We're running around the whale <laughs> 630 times. Reed is doing a whale-a-thon, that is to say, running around the roundabout at this prominent intersection where a brightly painted, life-size, breaching blue whale sculpture erupts in the middle of traffic. A lot of people are not really sure why the whale is here. Brooke Bullington is Reed's girlfriend. When we were driving by the whale, he said, our love is like a whale in the desert. And I was like, what does that mean? And he was like, I don't know. It's silly. It's weird. So why is it a controversy? Felicia Baca, head of the Salt Lake City Arts Council, says it all started during the pandemic. What do you do with your time when when you're locked up in your house and things are a little heavy? And a group of local residents started putting gnomes in the roundabout. And it became a very active grassroots community project. But when the Arts Council decided to put a whale in the roundabout, an official public arts project. As the residents learned about a work of art coming to be, they really started to worry about the displacement of the gnome community. That's how Emily Plew first heard about the unusual sculpture. Okay, so my son went gnoming one night. Under the cover of night, Plew's son and some friends went out to put out gnomes holding signs protesting the new sculpture coming to the roundabout. So I looked it up, I, yeah. I went to the website and I said, oh, it's a whale. Plew, a contemporary artist, said to her, public art here was an opportunity for meaningful symbolism showcasing Utah's beautiful desert landscape. What could a whale have to do with that? But she's still talking about the whale, with friends, with neighbors, presumably with garden gnomes. And she says all that conversation and engagement could actually make this project a success. Then, you know, like I said, you know, I'm of two minds, I think that's a win. Now, buried underneath the whale is a time capsule filled with art by elementary school kids about a world in which gnomes and whales coexist peacefully. For NPR News, I'm Tilda Wilson in Salt Lake City.
Tomorrow on Morning Edition, American composer Leonard Bernstein was known for his musical genius and chaotic energy. Now he's the subject of a new biopic starring and directed by Bradley Cooper. It focuses on the complicated relationship Bernstein had with his wife, Felicia. Is the film worth all the hype? Find out tomorrow on Morning Edition. Listen on the radio, online, or by asking your smart speaker to play NPR or your local station by name. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up in about 15 minutes, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu says Gaza may remain under Israeli control after Hamas is defeated. A former Israeli Prime Minister feels differently. We'll hear from him in about 15 minutes. WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation. Knowing that bringing people together is the best way to advance opportunity and equity in our city, the Boston Foundation is a convener, a research hub, and a civic leader. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. Wall Street gave up some ground today. The Dow lost two-tenths of a percent. S&P and NASDAQ both snapped a five-day win streak. S&P gave up two-tenths of a percent. The NASDAQ fell six-tenths of a percent. The Rolling Stones are returning to Massachusetts. The Stones will be at Gillette Stadium May 30th of next year as part of their 16-city tour across the U.S. The tour is to promote their new album, Hackney Diamonds, their first work of original music since 2005. Tickets go on sale December 1st. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Blue Cross Blue Shield of Massachusetts, Medicare plans for every lifestyle and budget. Visit bluecrossma.com slash go. Windswept rain overnight tonight. Temperatures in the mid-30s could have some snowfall inland in high elevation parts of central and western Massachusetts. Rain lasting through the night into tomorrow morning. Not a fun commute tomorrow and around Boston area. Will be busy, wet and windy as well. Tomorrow afternoon, maybe just a few leftover showers. Windy and warmer, close to 50 degrees. Could top 50 degrees on Thanksgiving Day Thursday with a good share of sunshine. It's 520. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Columbia Pictures and Apple Original Films presenting Napoleon. Directed by Ridley Scott and starring Joaquin Phoenix, Napoleon tells the story of Napoleon Bonaparte's rise to power, exclusively in theaters Thanksgiving. From Procter & Gamble, maker of Z-Quil Pure Z's gummies, designed with melatonin for occasional sleeplessness to help people fall asleep naturally. Learn more at zquill.com. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. When Rodrigo Duterte was elected as president of the Philippines in 2016, Patricia Evangelista was a field correspondent for Rappler, an independent news agency based in Manila. Hours after Duterte's inauguration, the body of a man was found with a sign declaring him a drug lord. So began years of reporting on the thousands of people who died as a result of Duterte's war on drugs and the thousands more who were left behind. Those years of reporting are the subject of Evangelista's new book. It's called Some People Need Killing, A Memoir of Murder in My Country. And as the title of the book suggests, there will be frank discussion of extrajudicial killings that some may find disturbing. The story that Rodrigo Duterte told when he ran for the presidency was that the reason for the shambles the country was in was a drug scourge. 
And then he said that addicts were terrible people. Kill them all, he said. So he didn't believe in rehabilitation. He believed in retribution. And people who voted for Rodrigo Duterte believed the same thing. He came at an important point where many people across decades had been living with failed expectations. Many people were poor. Many people were frustrated. Duterte came in and said, I know what's the problem and I will fix it for you. People elected a violent autocrat on an excess of hope. They hoped for something better. I expected there to be deaths on the street. The velocity of it was stunning in the aftermath. I really understood it one evening when we were told there was a death at a 7-Eleven and we got into the cars and we raced to the crime scene and we were outside the 7-Eleven and there was no body. Then we understood it was a different 7-Eleven. So we went down, covered the body, counted the bullets, that sort of thing. And then we got another alert. There was a body in front of a 7-Eleven. And then we said, we're here. They said, no, it's a different one. It was the same 7-Eleven that we had just been to within something like 30 minutes. The reason for me that I understood how enormous this was, the sudden change in conscience, in morality, in perspective in my country, is that according to the witnesses, the man who was killed, he was standing in front of the store, his killer walked up to him, shot him, and then walked away. He was unmasked, there was no getaway van, there was no motorcycle to pick him up, he didn't even run, he walked away, like it was normal. You have to listen to the language to understand how normalized it is for everyone else on the ground. So words like salvage to the rest of the world, that's a hopeful word. Salvage means to save, to rescue. To us, salvage meant to kill in a very particular sort of way, where they are left as scarecrows in the aftermath, that they are warnings to other people. Let me show you how a man is salvaged. I was standing at the high point of a bridge and the dead man was lying in the shadow of a parapet wall. He was a big man with big bare feet. There was a sign beside him. It said he was a drug dealer. His head had been wrapped in packing tape and that's when I heard the screaming. It came from the bottom of the bridge, a woman's voice, high and shrill. I saw her face first and then her feet come running. She fell to her knees beside me, just outside the yellow crime scene tape. She said her name was Ivy. She said the dead man was her husband. She said she knew him by his feet. René Desierto had been salvaged. In the aftermath, I saw Ivy many times, and I told Ivy that there would be a book. And she said, tell them our love story. So that's what I'm telling you now. 
She loved him, he loved her, and she loves him all the way to now. For me, I want to keep a good record. I want to honor the people who told me their stories. So if I can put it on paper in as clear a way as I can, maybe it matters someday for whoever is looking for a reckoning. And at the same time, I mostly thought with so many names and so many bodies that the job was to reconstruct the man who was lost when there was a challenge of likely crimes against humanity. The president said, I'd like to be frank with you. Are they human? What is your definition of a human being? So perhaps consciously or unconsciously across the book, I was trying to define the human being in whatever fashion other people see ordinary, regular, everyday people. Here's the color of the shoe. Here's the tenor of the scream. Here is what he last said to his mother. What I learned writing the book is that language matters and that language builds realities. All over the world, charismatic men and women will tell stories. And sometimes we laugh because it's funny. And sometimes they'll say some things that are dangerous, but not dangerous enough. And then maybe we'll applaud. And then they'll say something a little more dangerous, like maybe kill a drug dealer. And then later maybe kill a journalist, maybe kill an activist. And then maybe, because of what they say and what they do, a vigilante with a gun will also say, maybe some people need killing. The language matters, and the reason the book is called what it is is because it is the bluntest way to say it. That some people do believe some people need killing. With violence all over the world, with many situations where some lives are considered less grievable than others, maybe it is proper to ask the question as bluntly as possible. Do we think? Some people need killing. My job is to stand over the body on the ground and then ask, did this have to happen? And always, the answer is, it's because someone stood behind the barrel of a gun and said yes. Um, I hope someone somewhere might read the book and answer no to that was writer Patricia Evangelista talking about her book, Some People Need Killing, a memoir of murder in my country. It's out now. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Messy weather tonight with lots of rain pushed around by a strong wind. Temperatures in the mid-30s. Rain could last through the night and into tomorrow morning. A sloppy commute tomorrow, which will be a busy travel day as well, and a wet and windy one at that. By tomorrow afternoon, we should have some leftover showers, windy and warmer, close to 50 degrees. We could top 50 on Thanksgiving Day Thursday with a good helping of sunshine. This is WBUR, 38 degrees in Boston at 530. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network. So everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the 
future starts now. And Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont. Celebrating this season of giving with Subaru's Share the Love event, now through January 2nd. The conflict between Israel and Hamas, deep division in Congress and a looming election, devastation driven by climate change. These are serious times. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. WBUR and NPR bring you the latest developments on all of these fronts and the context to help make sense of what can at times feel like a senseless world. Keep our journalism strong with your year-end contribution. Give at WBUR.org and thanks. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The families of hostages being held by Hamas gathered in Tel Aviv today. NPR's Brian Mann reports the vigil comes ahead of an expected deal that could start the process of releasing their loved ones. I'm in one of the major squares in the heart of Tel Aviv and family members of hostages and their supporters have gathered here. Uh, there are candles lit everywhere. Uh, it's solemn. People have been telling me that they're angry, they're afraid, they're heartbroken that all of the hostages captured by Hamas on October 7th won't be released as part of this deal. Over and over again, people here tell me they want the Netanyahu government to do whatever it takes to negotiate a release of the rest of those held captive. That's NPR's Brian Mann reporting from Tel Aviv. The Biden administration says Israel and Hamas appear closer to reaching an agreement, but declined to comment on the exact details. A deal would prompt the first major break in fighting since the war broke out last month. The Pentagon says a ballistic missile fired by Iranian-backed militias was launched against an American airbase in Iraq last night. NPR's Tom Bowman reports the U.S. responded by striking Iranian-backed militias that resulted in several casualties. This is the second time the U.S. has mounted airstrikes resulting in casualties among Iranian-backed militias. The first was on November 13th in Syria, and this is the fourth time the U.S. has fired against Iranian-backed militias in both Syria and Iraq. Now, this is the first time the U.S. has mounted airstrikes in Iraq against Iranian-backed militias. NPR's Tom Bowman reporting. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Healy administration awarded $27 million today to 10 affordable housing developments across the state. The money will help improve energy efficiency, swap out fossil fuel heating systems for electric ones, and improve indoor air quality. As WBUR's Miriam Wasser reports, the grant program is part of the administration's efforts to tackle climate change. Buildings account for a whopping 35% of the state's total planet warming emissions. Reducing those emissions is expensive, and many low-income residents or developers can't afford to do it. Caitlin Robillard is with the Alston Brighton Community Development Corporation, which received one of the grants to retrofit affordable apartments in Boston. On average, these deep energy retrofits compared to traditional rehab cost more. So thank God the state recognized that and put something new out there for us to access. The $27 million awarded today will help retrofit more than 700 units across the state. Another $23 million will be awarded early next year. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Miriam Wasser.
There's a leadership shakeup of the Massachusetts Convention Center Authority. The agency's executive director will step down. This comes after a report found the authority fell short on diversity goals and employee claims that they felt discriminated against. WBUR's Ninjor and Wameka has more. The leadership change also comes after clashes within the Convention Center Authority over choosing a developer for a project in South Boston. Executive Director David Gibbons is resigning effective December 1st. In a statement, the agency's board chair, Emma Handy, said the departure was mutually agreed upon. The board plans to appoint an interim leader, and Handy said the agency will launch a transparent and inclusive search to fill the job permanently. The board has also created a task force to address diversity and inclusion. The agency says that task force began meeting this week. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Zaninjor and Wameka. Traffic is tough as commuters and Thanksgiving travelers hit the roads now. The Mass Pike is congested in both directions in and around Boston. Traffic is also backed up on 128 North, 95 South, and 93 South right near the city. The forecast is coming up. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Some heavy rain overnight tonight in Greater Boston. Gusty winds down about 37 degrees. Tomorrow, a rainy, windy start as well. A tough commute tomorrow. About 50 degrees tops. Showers could last until the afternoon, then turning mainly dry. Heads up, by the way, if you're on Cape Cod or heading there tomorrow afternoon, winds could pick up to about 50 miles an hour tomorrow. Thanksgiving Day Thursday, sunny and dry, could break 50. It's 535. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Subaru, the Subaru Share the Love event runs through January 2nd. By year's end, Subaru and its retailers will have donated over $285 million to charity. Subaru.com share. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. What can Gaza's past tell us about its future? Nearly 20 years ago, after weeks of heavy fighting between Israelis and Palestinians, Israel officially began to withdraw from the Gaza Strip. The mission is completed. An era has ended. In 2005, Gaza Divisional Commander General Aviv Kochavi spoke at the border crossing between Israel and Gaza. From this moment on, the responsibility for all that takes place in Gaza Strip lays on the Palestinians. At the time, Israel had occupied Gaza for 38 years since the 1967 war. The move polarized Israelis. They watched soldiers forcibly evacuating some of the 8,000 settlers who lived in Gaza. Palestinians hailed the withdrawal as a victory, a cause for celebration. The withdrawal happened when Ariel Sharon was prime minister. One of the chief architects of that plan became the next prime minister of Israel. Ehud Olmert. When I spoke with Olmert earlier today, I asked him to reflect back on that time and explain why he viewed a controversial disengagement as the right course of action. I thought then and I still think that we do the right thing. Israel didn't have to occupy Gaza. It didn't add anything to the security of the state of Israel. In fact, it forced us 
to keep 30,000 troops in order to protect about 8,000 that lived in the middle of Gaza. And in fact, in the five years prior to 2005, there were more rocket shooting against Israeli settlements within Gaza and more Israeli victims within Gaza than in the period between 2005 when we pulled out from Gaza until the 7th of October this year. And yet it was such a controversial move that at the time Benjamin Netanyahu, who is now prime minister, resigned from his cabinet post uh, to object to the decision. What do you say to those who claim that the withdrawal from the Gaza Strip led to Hamas's rise to power? Number one, Benjamin Netanyahu voted in favor of the withdrawal from Gaza in four different occasions in the cabinet and in the Knesset. Only a week before the actual implementation, he decided, because of political considerations, to pull out from the cabinet on the excuse that he is against what he has voted for. That's number one. Number two, as I said already, in the 18 years that passed since the actual pullout from Gaza in 2005, we had less number of casualties and victims than we had in the five years before we pulled out from Gaza. So anyone that can say that the reason for the uh, atrocities that were perpetrated against us in October is a result of the pullout from Gaza speaks uh, nonsense. This is not true and is not reasonable and has nothing to do with the realities that we have gone through. Just to take a step back, what do you think the most important lesson from the 2005 withdrawal is as we consider Gaza today? That we should have uh, arranged to have more security measures. We should have been much less arrogant about ourselves and about our neighbors. We thought that we can control everything, that we are smarter, that we are more sophisticated, we are the startup nation, we know everything that they don't know. And it turned out that they are smart enough and sophisticated enough and courageous enough and murderous enough to be able to do what they did and to surprise us and to catch us in a total, total unawareness which caused the uh, terrible damage. And so security is one question. Governance is another. What do you think the governance lesson is from Israel's 2005 withdrawal that applies today? Look, uh, there are two periods from 2005 to 2009. Most of the time I was prime minister. So what happened from 2009 until now is the total, total disregard to the option of political negotiations with the Palestinian Authority and and the, the, this calculated decision to support the control of the Hamas in Gaza. Today, Ehud Olmert says Israel should again pull out of Gaza once it has completed its military objective. He says another occupation is not an option and the current military campaign should end once Hamas is eradicated. So I asked him, how close is Israel to achieving that military goal in Gaza? It's too early to say. We need more time. Unfortunately, we need more time than perhaps President Biden and the Europeans 
may want to afford us. But to the question of how far off that goal of eradicating Hamas is, you recently said that Hamas's command center is actually in the south of Gaza, not in Gaza City, where fighting has been concentrated. Uh, how do you know? And if so, what do you make of Israel telling Palestinians to go to the southern part of Gaza and, and then continuing to bombard that area? We have more or less completed the first part in the north of Gaza, which is completely destroyed. And uh, Hamas is not present there anymore. They are all those who could escape to uh, the south part. Now we have to deal with the south part. It will take a few weeks. How long? I don't know. I know you said uh, Hamas must be eradicated. Is there any civilian cost that, in your opinion, is too high for that objective? Any civilian cost is too high. Any. One person who is not involved and is being affected is too high. And there are a lot more than one person. The question is, if we will not kill him, how many innocent people will be killed if he will stay alive? As opposed to how many non-involved people will be killed while we are killing him. And sometimes you have to kill knowing that non-involved people will be killed to save many more. And so you're confident that if the death toll is 12,000 people in Gaza, that's, I, that's, how, do you know, how do we know that? That, that if up. that is the number, then yeah, that is still up. a lower number than would have been killed. I know we're speculating about counterfactuals, but... No, uh, you know, the uh, the Hamas is spreading numbers that are unchecked, un... un well, I need to note that the Palestinian know, health officials, th- that department is not run entirely by Hamas. The Palestinian yeah. Authority is involved. In, the Palestinian Health Authority in Gaza is controlled by Hamas. It's as simple as that. So you don't believe so that the death toll is as high as, maybe as the thousands health authority of, maybe has thousands of people, Maybe thousands of people were killed. I can tell you that I genuinely regret every single one of them. It is not our purpose. It is not our policy. It is not our goal. We don't want to kill any innocent civilians. But if we want to save the Middle East from a total disarray and possible comprehensive military confrontation, we have to eradicate Hamas and we'll do it. Former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you very much. You're listening to All Things Considered. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. The war between Israel and Hamas has triggered a humanitarian disaster in Gaza. Medical facilities have hardly been spared, and the crisis feels personal for some doctors in Boston who have strong ties to the region. WBUR's Priyanka Dayal-McCluskey reports. Dr. Leonette Vasquez was training at a mental health clinic in Gaza two years ago when she met a little girl whose family had been hit by an airstrike. The girl drew a picture. Vasquez remembers it well. There was no green for grass. There was no blue for sky. It was just a gray background with corpses on the ground and tombstones and a house that was sort of in flames. Vasquez is a resident physician at Massachusetts General Hospital, and she's been thinking about that girl since the current conflict in Gaza began. The hospital where Vasquez once worked, Al-Shifa, 
became a refuge for civilians, then the site of an Israeli military raid. Israel claims Hamas had a command center under the hospital. Hamas denies this. We can stop this and we should. Vasquez is among a growing number of healthcare workers in Boston and across the country who have been calling for a ceasefire. About 1,200 people were killed and 240 taken hostage when Hamas attacked Israel on October 7th. Israel responded with airstrikes and a ground invasion, which have killed about 13,000 people, according to Gaza health officials. Dr. Lara Germanis is a primary care physician in Cambridge. None of us ever anticipated that we would be witnessing anything on this kind of scale. Germanis's family is Lebanese and Palestinian. She's worked at Palestinian refugee camps and always brought vials of anesthetic or other supplies. She says Palestinian doctors are used to having limited resources, but the scale of this conflict is forcing impossible choices about whose life to try to save when they lack medicine, water, and fuel. Every decision that rations care, every time that you can't save somebody, it weighs on you. I mean, I still think about patients who I've lost in my medical career, it's hard to not think about them. Germana says stopping the violence is the only way to help civilians. She's been organizing with the group Boston Healthcare Workers for Palestine. Meanwhile, some U.S. doctors who support Israel have provided medical aid in the aftermath of the October 7th attack. They include Dr. Yoav Golan, an infectious disease specialist at Tufts Medical Center, who grew up in Israel. I personally know families that were kidnapped and and murdered, even though I've been in America for almost 25 years. A few weeks ago, he joined the crew of an intensive care ambulance along the Gaza border. He says he's never seen people so traumatized, even emergency medical workers. As ridiculous as it may sound, it's part of everyday life there. When you're in an ambulance, all you can do is get out and lie down and, and hope for the best. You're always looking for the direction the missile will come and so forth. Golan says Israelis have a right to defend themselves, and he believes a ceasefire won't resolve the conflict. As the destruction in Gaza grows, Dr. Leonette Vasquez says she wishes more people could see the Gaza she remembers. Gaza is a place of beauty. It's a place of families welcoming you with a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. It's a place where children play around at the beach. It's a place where the sound of music welcomed each sunset because there were wedding celebrations and birthday celebrations. One day, she hopes to visit that Gaza again. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dale McCluskey. Coming up on WBUR in about 20 minutes, the Department of Veterans Affairs put a stop to foreclosures for veterans with VA home loans, but the stop is temporary. That story is still ahead. Got messy weather coming up tonight. Lots of rain pushed around by a pretty strong wind. Temperatures in the mid-30s. Rain could last through the night tonight and through tomorrow morning. A sloppy commute tomorrow, which will be a busy travel day, a windy and wet one. By tomorrow afternoon, we should have leftover showers. Windy and warmer, close to 50. Could top 50 on Thanksgiving Day Thursday with a good share of sunshine. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with private cooking events for team building, family reunions, birthday parties, or nights out. CambridgeCulinary.com.
If you're a newcomer to Boston or just a frequent traveler, there's a fair chance you pass through Logan International Airport in East Boston. But have you ever truly explored the neighborhood around Logan? It's time for a tip from our field guide to Boston. East Boston, or Eastie as locals call it, is an immigrant neighborhood to its core. For almost two centuries, first-generation Americans have made it home. And today, Latinos from Colombia, El Salvador, and Guatemala make East Boston one of the most ethnically diverse communities in the city. A tip from locals, make sure you go get a pupusa, the melty, cheesy, doughy Salvadoran staple at 2 Metapon on Bennington Street. To get more familiar with what makes Boston's communities unique, check out the Field Guide to Boston at wbur.org slash fieldguide. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Imagine if the pets in a fifth grade classroom could talk. That's the premise of the new animated Netflix movie, Leo. Comedian Bill Burr voices a turtle. When Adam Sandler was on SNL in the early 1990s, Robert... Cyber criminals love the holiday season. The internet is flooded. Adam Sandler was on SNL in the early 1990s. Robert Smigel, who co-wrote and directed Leo, was one of the writers. Sandler even modeled Leo's voice on a talent manager who represented a lot of SNL cast members. Bernie Brillstein sounded like this. So I would have just gotten him a publisher and not paid any attention to it. And here's Leo. Never heard the word enough. We used to run around and do his voice. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Smigel and Sandler say Brillstein's warmth is in Leo, too. Everybody loved him as a man. He had a very jovial, fun way to look at things, and he calmed you when you, he spoke, and so <laughs> we thought it would make some sense. You uh, have to understand. Leo's gift is understanding fifth graders. Last year of elementary school, last year of being a kid, being a The last year of elementary school, a time when kids feel both on top of the world and plagued by insecurities. One kid is ashamed of his high voice. The class bully is afraid to admit he doesn't know where babies come from. When you're a kid, you, there's stuff you don't want to just blurt out to your parents, but when your grandparents visit and you're like, oh God, this is painful, let me just tell somebody, and you tell grandma, you tell grandpa, and that's <laughs> basically what Leo allows these kids to do. Each student takes a turn bringing Leo home. And when he starts talking to them, they freak out. The trophy! You said something! You just spoke! Mom! No! You talk! You're talking! But talking or singing to Leo helps them with their problems. Like the girl who's a motor mouth. I like always just come out and say whatever's on my mind. And like people look okay with it, but maybe they're resigned. But I can't help saying more, they maybe smile like they're enjoying. You have no idea how stressful it is to not know what my talking gets annoying. I've seen a lot of kids who talk a lot. They see So like I just continue talking and it's Smigel and Sandler worked on Leo during the pandemic. Sandler says they were pretty much drawing from real life. Our kids were in elementary school. Yes. They were dealing with, the, the, with what these kids go through, and we were dealing with what the parents go through. We definitely were right in the heart of it. 
Sandler and Smigel's kids voice some of the parts. Sandler's oldest daughter plays a character whose family is all about appearances. Jada is popular and confident on the outside. Leo gives her some tough love. Ugh, you don't get what being awesome's like. But you're not. I'm what? Brace yourself. Not that great. I know you guys are proud, but your house is kind of loud and your dad's a middleweight. You're no better or worse than any other person. You know, I always thought that was just one of the greatest things you can say to your, your child. It also takes the pressure to be perfect off Jada. So then I'm not that great. There you go. But I can feel that weight. Coming off like heavy gear after 11 stressful years to my fellow average peers, I can finally as the school year comes to an end, the kids start to worry what they'll do without Leo. He reassures them. Remember, everyone's scared. So don't keep it to yourself. Find your Leo to talk to. Elizabeth Blair, NPR News. But that was then. When I was 10. Ready to nab all this Black Friday deals? Well, as always, it is important to keep an eye out for cyber scams. And new research suggests companies could be doing more to protect you from being tricked. NPR's Jenna McLaughlin reports. Cyber criminals love the holiday season. The internet is flooded with ads clamoring for shoppers' attention, and that makes it easier to slip in a scam. At this point, you probably know to watch out for phishing emails. But it might surprise you to know that there's a tool that's been around a long time that could help solve this problem. It's called DMARC, or the Domain Message Authentication Reporting and Conformance Protocol. Whew. It's actually pretty simple. It basically helps prove the sender is who they say they are. DMARC seeks to bring trust and confidence to the visible from address of an email so that when you receive an email, um, from an address at wellsfargo.com or bestbuy.com, you can um, say with absolute certainty it definitely came from them. Robert Holmes is with the cybersecurity firm Proofpoint. According to his new research, more than half of the top 50 online retailers in the United States, they're not fully compliant with DMARC. Experts are predicting record-breaking holiday shopping this year. That makes for a lot of potential for fraud. Holmes helps explain why with a timely analogy. The way to look at this is Gmail on, on Black Friday, it's like kind of JFK Airport over Thanksgiving. So imagine you're at JFK Airport on one of these days with lots of people coming and going, and imagine a world where that airport didn't check IDs. Um, lots of nefarious activity would happen. But there's good news. Early next year, Google and Yahoo will be requiring companies to use DMARC authentication. Otherwise, their messages will be more likely to get flagged as spam or blocked entirely. Holmes suggests it's important that companies take on a big part of the burden of securing their customers, rather than train everyone to be cybersecurity experts just to buy Christmas gifts. So the thing about good security, it should be invisible to Joe Public. Even so, that might not be the end of consumer problems. I think the consequences of getting this wrong are severe. Legitimate email gets blocked. That's because big companies have a big supply chain. They give third parties permission to send emails on their behalf. You know those automated messages you get when your flight time changes or a payment is due? Those services need to be secured too, or they might get blocked. 
If retailers don't take those kinds of things into consideration, you might miss a scam, but you could also miss a flight. Jen McLaughlin, NPR News. Support for All Tech Considered comes from CrowdStrike, whose cybersecurity platform is designed to protect organizations by monitoring trillions of cyber events to detect threats and prevent breaches before they happen. CrowdStrike, protection that powers you. And from DataIQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from FX, presenting Fargo from creator Noah Hawley and starring Juno Temple, John Hamm, and Jennifer Jason Leigh. The series returns with a new chapter tonight at 10 on FX, streaming on Hulu. From Indiana University, committed to moving the world forward and working to tackle some of society's biggest challenges. Nine campuses, one purpose, creating tomorrow, today. More at iu.edu. From Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists tailor portfolios to each client's long-term goals. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders and changemakers to advance equity and power a better Boston. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. I'm On Point executive producer Jonathan Dyer, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. There's a deal in the works to release some 50 hostages Hamas seized from Israel October 7th. Coming up, what happens after the war comes to an end? Israeli officials are considering whether demilitarizing or de-radicalizing Gaza is possible. Today is Tuesday, November 21st, and this is All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, a pandemic-era program allowed veterans and service members to temporarily skip mortgage payments. It also left thousands on the verge of losing their homes. I feel like I've been scammed almost. I mean, we live here, we have nowhere else to go. Now the VA says it's halting those foreclosures for six months. And pumpkin pie prices are way up this year, but turkeys are a relative bargain. A lot of Americans will be giving thanks this holiday for lower inflation at the supermarket. It's 6.01. News headlines are next.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden says some Israeli hostages held in Gaza could be coming home soon. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports on the efforts to secure the release of those captured by Hamas militants in the October 7th attack in Israel. Speaking at the White House, the president delivered his most optimistic words yet on reaching an agreement to release some of the 200-plus hostages being held by Hamas. We are uh, now very close, very close. Uh, we could bring uh, some of these hostages home very soon. But I don't want to get into the, into the details of things because nothing is done until it's done. The president says he spoke recently with the prime ministers of Israel and Qatar, which has been helping moderate the negotiations. Biden says his team has been working intensively for weeks on the effort, with U.S. officials shuttling between the camps. Franco Ordonez, NPR News, the White House. Justice Department officials are calling it one of the biggest settlements of its kind, an agreement by cryptocurrency exchange Binance to pay a more than $4 billion fine after the company pleaded guilty to money laundering charges. Binance's CEO Chenpeng Zhao will also step down. Attorney General Merrick Garland hailed the agreement as an important step toward shutting down funding for criminal and terrorist organizations. This will advance our criminal investigations into malicious cyber activity, and terrorism fundraising, including the use of cryptocurrency exchanges to support groups such as Hamas. The violations on the part of the company centered around the Bank Secrecy Act and included failing to report suspicious transactions. Travel is not the only thing picking up, so are several common respiratory illnesses. Cases of COVID-19 and RSV are on the rise. NPR's Will Stone reports experts say there are simple steps people can take now to lower the risk of getting infected, though. It's a very different Thanksgiving from early in the pandemic, thanks to high levels of immunity and treatments. But COVID is still out there. The latest data shows more than 16,000 people in the U.S. were hospitalized from the week of November 5th to 11th. Caitlin Rivers, an epidemiologist teaching at Johns Hopkins University, says she expects cases will keep climbing into January. So there's quite a bit heading into this holiday season, and it's definitely worth paying attention to as you plan your gatherings. She recommends wearing an N95 or K95 mask when traveling and considering a rapid test before getting together, especially if you're around someone who's older or vulnerable. Will Stone, NPR News. The interest rate setting Federal Reserve in the minutes of its meeting from earlier this month apparently agrees while inflation has been steadily falling, close monitoring is still necessary. As a result, Fed policymakers opted to leave their key benchmark interest rate unchanged. Fed Chair Jerome Powell has also kept the door open for another hike if needed, though many economists believe the Fed may be done ratcheting up rates at least for the rest of this year. Stocks lost ground on Wall Street today. The Dow was down 62 points. The Nasdaq fell 84 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. If you're doing your traveling later this evening or tomorrow, be careful. The going could get tough. There's heavy traffic in both directions now on the Mass Turnpike. Also backups on 128 North, 95 South, and 93 South near the city. As WBR's meteorologist Danielle Noyce tells us, if you're heading well west of Boston later this evening, you may have to deal with some nasty weather. Some slippery travel tonight well inland as snow develops west to east, 7 to 10 p.m. through western and central Massachusetts. One to three inches of snow accumulation in northern Worcester County, though some higher totals are likely with elevation. Otherwise, it's rain starting in the city around 10 p.m. or so and continuing through tomorrow morning. Heavy at times, there'll be reduced visibility, puddles, wipers on full blast to leave plenty of extra time to get where you need to be if you need to hit the road in the morning. Steady rain is done around noon, though, with just some leftover afternoon showers, about a half an inch to an inch of rain for most.
And she says that there will be an issue tomorrow on Cape Cod with the gusty winds that could be 40 to 50 miles an hour and cause some localized damage. Number of migrants coming into Massachusetts appears to be declining. Governor Maura Healy says state officials have seen a recent drop in the number of migrants in need of emergency shelter. Healy says colder weather is one possible reason for the downturn. This month, the state reached its emergency shelter capacity. This week, temporary shelter space was opened in a state office building in Boston. Massachusetts lawmakers are considering restrictions on how police can use facial recognition technology. As WBR's Walter Wuthman reports, advocates say the technology disproportionately misidentifies people of color. The proposal would require police to obtain a warrant before using facial recognition technology on an unidentified suspect. It would also require police to inform criminal defendants they were identified through the software so they have the opportunity to challenge it. State Senator Cynthia Cream is one of the bill's sponsors. Facial recognition technology is dangerous, both in its ability to facilitate government surveillance and its track record of misidentifying people in criminal investigations. Two other states, Montana and Maine, have recently passed laws limiting law enforcement's use of facial recognition technology. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. A ballot question that would allow the state auditor to audit the legislature is advancing. The ballot question campaign says it gathered more than 100,000 signatures. That's well above the nearly 75,000 signature threshold required to move the initiative to the next phase. The attorney general's office determined earlier this month that auditor Diana DeZoglio doesn't have the legal authority to audit the legislature. Mechanics, fuelers, and other skilled workers have a new contract with the MBTA. State transit officials say the new agreement will help keep maintenance along the rail line on schedule. The contract includes wage increases, extended leave benefits, and professional development incentives. The new agreement covers nearly 450 workers and extends into 2027. Once again, in the forecast, messy weather tonight. Rain pushed around by a strong wind, temperatures in the mid-30s. Rain should last through tomorrow morning. A sloppy morning commute tomorrow. Temperatures eventually about 50 degrees could have a dry afternoon tomorrow and then for Thursday Thanksgiving Day should have at least partly sunny skies highs topping 50. 38 in Boston at 608. We're funded by you our listeners and by the Kauffman Foundation providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. If you ask Israel's leaders, they'll tell you the country has two goals in its war with Hamas in Gaza. Here's how Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu put it in a recent interview on NPR's Morning Edition. We need to demilitarize Gaza. And the second thing we have to do is de-radicalize Gaza. Let's zero in on that second objective. Is it possible to de-radicalize Gaza or any place through war? Natan Sachs directs the Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution. Thanks for talking this through with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, in that interview, Netanyahu compared Israel's bombing of Gaza to the Allies' conduct in World War II. Here's more of what he said. It's like, what do you do when you you beat the Nazi regime? Uh, Well, you uh, make sure that uh, Germany doesn't arm itself again. And you also make sure that Nazism is uh, removed. So when we look at this central question of whether war can be a tool of de-radicalization, do you think World War II proves that de-radicalization through war is in fact possible? Well, it doesn't prove it one way or the other, but it does show that 
as part of a decisive victory, one might also achieve de-radicalization, but war is certainly not enough. And there are many differences between the two cases. What else is required? Well, first, you would think, if you think of that example or the example of Japan, then you would take a decisive victory, one that disproves the whole premise of the ideology behind that regime in the eyes of, the, of its own population, partly through the destruction of war, but partly through the decisive victory over that regime. And the second is an obvious promise of peace, of something that actually could emerge if de-radicalization happens. So what the Allies, and particularly the United States, offer Japan and the Allies offer in Germany, both West and East Germany, is a path forward, something, a choice that they can make. So the question when you turn to Gaza is first, will this victory truly be decisive, not only in Gaza, but overall over Hamas and over the ideology for which it stands? And second, is another avenue clearly open to Palestinians? Mm. Is there something that they can choose that is not this? And is there a risk that a high civilian death toll will actually make people more radicalized? I mean, the Palestinian health ministry says more than 12,000 people have been killed in Gaza, nearly 5,000 of them children. Could that work against Israel's stated goal? The death toll and the destruction in Gaza is enormous. And without a question, it will also lead to radicalization. So the question is, what kind of mixed bag will there be? There will be now probably generations of Palestinians growing up with this as a defining memory, perhaps, of their life. Some of them, many of them, wanting revenge and therefore a fertile ground for radicalization in the future. But there will also be, perhaps, if Israel is successful, and we don't know that yet, if Israel is successful, there will also be the lack of the physical and organizational infrastructure in the Gaza Strip that would offer radicals the opportunity. So the radicalization that will surely follow from this massive destruction in the Gaza Strip and the staggering death toll will also be coupled, perhaps, by a lack of opportunity given the degradation of Hamas itself, of course, depending on what emerges in its wake. There could be other organizations, more radical organizations, different ones, or Hamas itself in a more underground form. How does one even measure if an effort at de-radicalization is successful? It seems like you would be trying to measure people's opinions, people's points of view, people's beliefs. How can you tell whether a population has been, quote-unquote, de-radicalized? Well, in part, it's just that. In part, it is people's opinions. But it's not so much just polling. It is more also their willingness to support uh, radical organizations. Radical organizations need the support of the population. It's not just the operatives themselves. It's their ability to operate within a population, to find refuge and hideout, but also to recruit future uh, activists. All this depends on the societal attitudes. And yes, that is partly a matter of opinion. When we think about de-radicalization through these means, of course, it's very easy to see all the pitfalls. And this Israeli operation, especially given the staggering death toll in the Gaza Strip, is bound to also radicalize the population and make it hard. But when we're thinking of policy, we also have to think of the alternative. If Hamas stays in power, the prospect of de-radicalization or of a better future for Gazans and for Israelis is minimal. We could expect almost guaranteed another round of violence, another war in the near future. So while a lot of criticism is due, certainly for the way Israel's conducting this war, there's a very important policy question, which is what precisely is the alternative? And if the alternative includes Hamas staying in power in the Gaza Strip, that's not much of an alternative at all. Natan Sachs is the director of the Center for Middle East Policy at the Brookings Institution. Thanks a lot. My pleasure. Thank you very much. 
The Department of Veterans Affairs has announced that it is halting foreclosures for six months for thousands of veterans. Many were on the verge of needlessly losing their homes. The move follows an investigation by NPR that first reported the problem a week ago. NPR's Chris Arnold reports. A lot of veterans and service members will be breathing easier this Thanksgiving. That's because many were about to lose their homes through no fault of their own. We first reported on one of those families last week. Ray and Becky Queen were showing us around their farm in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. This is Cagney and Lacey, our, um, our ducks. The couple lives here with their two young kids. Ray served in Iraq in the Army. Inside their house, he says he was wounded by an improvised explosive device, or IED. And just so you're aware, um, I, I, I have brain damage from my time in Iraq, so there's a lot of different things that don't work the way they're supposed to anymore. Um, And my memory is not great. For decades, the federal government has helped veterans like Queen to buy homes through its VA loan program. And during the pandemic, tens of thousands of people with VA loans took what's called a COVID forbearance that allowed them to skip six or 12 mortgage payments if they had a hardship. When Becky's mom died of COVID, she had to take an extended leave from work and lost her job. Last year, the couple says their mortgage company told them they could stop paying their mortgage while they got back on their feet financially. I very specifically asked, how does this work? And they said, we're taking all of your payments, we're bundling them and we're putting them at the end. That is, the missed payments would move to the back end of their loan term so they could just resume their regular mortgage payments. But that is not how it worked out, because a year ago, the VA ended the program that let people actually do that, stranding families like the Queens with bad options that many couldn't afford, either pay a big lump sum to catch up or refinance at today's high rates. We spoke to the Queens right after they'd received a foreclosure notice. My heart dropped. And like my hands were shaking, it was scary. How does that happen? This is supposed to be a program that y'all have to help people in times of crisis so you don't take their house from them. NPR spoke with other veterans around the country who were in the same boat. Karen Whitley's a former Navy aviation electrician who lives in Lakeland, Florida. I feel like I've been hoodwinked. I feel like I've been scammed almost. You know, the next thing we know, the sheriff's going to be at the door. I mean, we live here. We have nowhere else to go. (laughs) Jeanelle Rainier-Briggs lives in Lacey, Washington. They put the house into foreclosure. My kids came home from school and they were taping stuff onto our door. They're like, here's this. And I opened it. And I mean, I literally almost threw up. Mortgage industry data shows there are 6,000 people with VA loans who took forbearances who are currently in the foreclosure process and 34,000 more who were delinquent. Meanwhile, the VA has been working on a new program to help, but it won't be up and running for four or five months. So it was going to be too late to save many of those families from losing their homes. Ray Queen wanted to know why the VA couldn't just stop foreclosing on people until the new program was available. Let us keep paying towards our regular mortgage between now and then. And then once the VA has that fixed, then we come back and we address the situation. That seems like the adult, mature thing to do, not put a family through hell. We interviewed the top official in the VA loan program. His name is John Bell. And this is me asking him directly about what Ray Queen said. Why not just stop foreclosing on people? Why put families through hell, he said. 
if we don't have to, if, you know, if there's going to be help in a few months. I, I have never I haven't said through this interview that that, you know, that we aren't exploring all options at this at this point in time, because we certainly are. We owe it to our veterans to make sure that we're giving them every opportunity to be able to stay in the home. After our first story aired, a group of four U.S. senators fired off a letter to the VA, including Senator John Tester of Montana. He's chair of the Senate Veterans Affairs Committee. He posted a video, too. The Biden administration needs to act now to address this crisis. Our veterans risk their lives serving our country, and they earn the home loan guaranteed benefit. They're having to rug pulled out from underneath them, and that is totally unacceptable. The senators asked the VA to halt the foreclosures. And on Friday evening, the VA said it's now doing just that. Steve Sharp is a senior attorney with the National Consumer Law Center. Very relieved. The VA's decision to put that pause in place, give folks six months, let their program come out, it will help thousands of people. That includes Ray and Becky Queen. This is me telling them about it the night the VA made the announcement. The VA is now going to stop foreclosing while they figure out this new program and get it up and running so people in your guys' situation can take advantage of it and not lose your house for no reason. That's awesome. (laughs) The couple says they're still upset they had to go through months of stress and worry and almost declared bankruptcy when they didn't do anything wrong, but... The fact that telling our story and getting some sort of justice for what's going on with our problems and everything else also helps 40,000 other veterans, that's absolutely amazing to me. The VA says any homeowner who's behind on their payments can get in touch by calling or visiting va.gov. Chris Arnold, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Coming up on WBUR's All Things Considered, the average home buyer is getting older and richer. A look at the factors contributing to people buying homes later in life and what that says about the economy. Coming up on Business News, which starts at 6.30. Wall Street gave up some ground today. The Dow lost about two-tenths of a percent. S&P and NASDAQ both snapped a five-day win streak. The S&P gave up two-tenths of a percent. NASDAQ fell six-tenths of a percent. A Cambridge biotech company is being acquired by a pharmacy giant Merck in a $610 million deal. Caraway Therapeutics focuses on experimental drugs for rare and neurodegenerative diseases such as Parkinson's. Merck says it plans to continue Caraway's work by testing the drug in humans. Rolling Stones are returning to the Bay State. The Stones will be at Gillette Stadium May 30th of next year as part of their 16-city tour across the U.S., The tour is to promote their new album, Hackney Diamonds, their first work of original music since 2005. Tickets go on sale the 1st of December. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley, helping college students get back on track through academics, executive functioning, coaching, and yoga. Semesteroff.com. And Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G Network, So everyone at home can be online, even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. 
Could have a drenching rain overnight tonight. Strong winds, too, about 37 for a low. Colder than that in central and western Mass, where there could be snowfall on the higher elevations tonight. For tomorrow around Boston, the commute should be sloppy as rain continues. Pretty slick conditions. By the afternoon, things should turn dry. Temperatures about 50 degrees. For Thanksgiving Day Thursday, at least partly sunny, right about 50. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Home for Little Wanderers, creating better, brighter futures for kids because no child should go through life alone. Thehome.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. As friends and families gather around the dinner table later this week, some will be giving thanks for lower inflation. Grocery prices are still high, but they're not climbing as fast as they had been. And for many people, the cost of cooking up a Thanksgiving feast is actually a little lower this year than it was last. NPR's Scott Horsley reports. Standing outside a supermarket a few days before the most food-centric holiday of the year, Angelina Murray has a familiar complaint about food prices. They are high. They are high, but that's the cost of living. That's what it is. It's nothing that we can do until prices come down. We're just going to have to deal. The American Farm Bureau Federation, which has been tracking Thanksgiving prices for almost four decades, agrees this year's bill is historically high, but not quite as high as last year's. That's welcome news for Bridget Kaiser, whose menu includes turkey, stuffing, mashed potatoes, and lots of pie. She and her husband are hosting nearly two dozen people this year. My mom, his mom, his brother, his brother's wife, friends of my kids from her school, from families that don't celebrate, and a family that lives in my mom's basement. The Farm Bureau says the overall cost of a traditional feast is down about 4.5% from a year ago, largely thanks to falling turkey prices. Food economist Michael Swanson of Wells Fargo says turkey farmers raised a lot more birds this summer in preparation for this week's meal. All of them put a lot more birds in the barn, and they're heavier birds. So there's a lot of turkey available right now, and they just have to price it down to move it. But some of the money shoppers save on turkey may get gobbled up elsewhere. Sweet potato prices are slightly higher than a year ago, and Swanson says russet potatoes are a lot more expensive. A year ago, the Pacific Northwest was in a terrible drought, and that really hurt the potato seed for this year. So they're still kind of doing it in the catch-up mode. They had a good year this year, but... It takes a while to get that supply chain to unkink. And then there's the great cranberry conundrum. The price of fresh cranberries is way down this year, thanks to a bumper crop. But if your family likes the can variety, the kind where you can still see the ridges of the can, even when it's on the plate, expect to pay a lot more as a result of higher processing and packaging costs. The entire canned market is up. Whether you're talking about beans or cranberries or pumpkins, Canned prices really shot up. David Chavern, who represents packaged food companies as head of the Consumer Brands Association, warns the price of canned goods could go even higher next year if the Biden administration slaps new tariffs on imported steel. We've been pleased that the Department of Commerce has held off on those tariffs for the most part, but there's going to be a final determination at the beginning of 2024 that we're watching very closely. In the meantime, Chavern's planning his own Thanksgiving feed with plenty of friends and family. We're expecting it to be pretty big ourselves. It is still some element of this pent-up post-COVID demand to, to connect with people. It's great from our perspective. We love having people around. Back at the supermarket, Colton Parker and Carrie Murray are loading groceries into the back of their car. By now, they've gotten a little numb to high prices at the supermarket, but they still did a double take at the long receipt. 
it was we, we weren't looking at the prices until we stepped out and then looking at the receipt you say oh wow uh, yeah i think i was surprised that a lot of the produce was on sale like that was kind of a nice surprise yeah. things that are expensive it's the stuff that has been expensive for a while but you know it's for family, it's for the holidays. Some shoppers say they are cutting corners here and there, switching to store brands, for example. But most say Thanksgiving is a time to count blessings, not hunt for bargains. Overall, grocery prices have risen just over 2% during the last 12 months, after a jump of more than 12% the previous year. If other food prices, like turkey, actually start to come down, that will be gravy. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Agriculture is responsible for about 10 percent of America's greenhouse gas emissions. The federal government is spending $3 billion to try to transform the industry from part of the climate problem to part of the solution. The so-called climate smart commodities money has been rolling out for a year now. Rachel Cohen from member station Boise State Public Radio visited one ranch in Idaho to see how it's being spent. Yeah, at the mark. Okay, so then let's look at... In a hilly sagebrush pasture in southeastern Idaho, cattle ranchers Wendy and Mark Pratt are navigating toward a GPS coordinate. So this is interesting. The pin they spot in the ground is the starting point for a research project. Mark unravels measuring tape. We're going to make a box monitoring box. A team of consultants from a project called Grazewell is here to help assess their ranching practices over five years. They chose this spot, which looks out to snowy peaks on the horizon because the soil is sandy, Wendy says. So this is the one that we can use to figure out the potential of the rest of the sand hills on the rest of the ranch. The Prats are regenerative ranchers. That generally means they move their cows around a lot to allow plants to replenish in between bites. They started ranching this way decades ago, in part because of pressure from environmentalists. They're interested in knowing more about where their food came from. And this is just one more step in that process. Not only where did it come from, but how did it get here? What what process got it to us. All 100 ranches in their beef co-op, Country Natural Beef, are part of Grazewell too. The idea is that healthy rangeland is not just a boon for business, but the climate too. On the pasture, they dig up soil samples to send to a lab. Healthy soil can soak up carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. The Grazewell team working here will travel to 120 ranches to conduct baseline assessments. It's part of the $3 billion the Department of Agriculture is spending on 141 projects, like planting cover crops on millions of acres, converting waste to biofuels, and restoring forests. The department thinks all this could capture more than 60 million metric tons of carbon dioxide. That would be like taking 12 million gas-powered cars off the road for a year. I think the right word to call this sort of set of money is historic. Omantana Goswami is a food researcher at the Union of Concerned Scientists. She says climate-smart commodities opens up climate action to way more farmers than ever before. But proving carbon reduction on farms and ranches is tough. In the first year, Goswami says, there's insufficient data for most projects. On what each project was setting out to do, 
who was doing them and what was the role of each partner within it? And, and a lot of those questions are unanswered even to this date. The USDA requires regular monitoring, but Goswami isn't sure what will be publicly available. So she says it may be tough to know if the projects are delivering results. But the Prats are hopeful that consumers understand the benefits of Grazewell. We hope that there's a message out there that cattle production can be a good thing. The Prats co-op is working on a label to tell supermarket shoppers that its beef is climate friendly. The plan is for the label to start appearing in stores next year. For NPR News, I'm Rachel Cohen. I'm Tiziana Deering. My colleagues and I at NPR and at WBUR are covering the Israel-Hamas war and the resulting humanitarian crisis. Whether we're reporting on the front lines or making sense of the crisis from thousands of miles away, our journalism requires editorial rigor, skill, and sensitivity. Support the journalism you trust. Make your end-of-year gift at WBUR.org. And thanks.